The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted, live, and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own, and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged, and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation. The world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Coco Nation Show, episode 321. We made it. <laughs> Quit chatting. We're now beyond the screen resolution of H screen two. That's right. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, let's see. The panel has assembled. Let's see who we got on today. Uh, oh, I need to push this button over here. Buttons are toys. Okay. Um, this is what happens when you're unsupervised. Mm-hmm. You know, which reminds me, we need that uh, need to get a clip from that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, buttons are not toys. <laughs> All right. First up in the corner, yours truly. Hello. Next over, Rick Uland. Howdy, folks. You push this. <laughs> hey, we got Ken Waters. Good morning, everybody. Okay. And Marco. Hey, glad to be here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next row, L. Curtis Boyle. Welcome to the show, everyone. Okay, then Coconut Bob. Greetings. Welcome. And Ron Delvo. Yes, sir. And speaking of buttons, I have stress relief because I have this executive stress eliminator. And genuine dandy. It's Radio Shack. Genuine. Genuine Radio Shack leather wood grain. So, sh should you watch this show, <laughs> press the button. Oh, let's see. Next up, Brian Weasler. Hello, all. Welcome to the show. Okay. And Kevin Holloway. Hello, everybody. Hey, Alan. Howdy, howdy, everyone. Glad you're here. Okay. And Jason. Hello, hello. Get ready to have David Ladd stamp your passport as you enter the Coco Nation. Okay, and next up, Nick Laurentiis. Uh, good everyone. Welcome from Australia. Okay, and then last but not least, he who will stamp your passport, David Ladd. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coco Nation show. Please sit, stay a while. And enjoy the show. 
Uh, that's creepy. Now his voice sounds just <laughs> a little different today. So we have a, in the pre-show, we were having a little discussion. And we have a question for you, Mark Siegel. And that is, on the Coco 3, why do they use an 8-volt eight eight modulator? We await your answer. What was the uh, difference between 3 and 1 and 2? So the Coco 1 used the 12-volt because that was available. And then the, because the Coco 2 was a 5-volt only machine, it had a 5-volt modulator. But for the Coco 3, they went through the expense of adding a little bit of 8-volt power supply to drive the modulator. So it's like, why did they do that? Because it certainly didn't help the video quality any. <laughs> I'm going to take a wild guess and say that 8-volt modulators were cheap, and it was cheaper to put that little 8-volt power supply along with the 8-volt modulator than it was to have a 5-volt modulator. But I might be wrong. <laughs> Thank you for supporting my position. <laughs> it fits in a nine volt powered Coleco game or something. Right? Well, we, are, we already know that uh, Radio Shack made decisions based on money. Mm -hmm. The five volts were popular, so they were more expensive. Uh, Mark can't help us. Oh no! Oh no! The Even though he designed it, the safe money I think is on that it was about money. <laughs> because they can. Where? Why? Why did Tandy do that? Money. Because they can. <laughs> to save oh. money, I, sh I should say. Oh, that reminds me. I have this. Tell me why did Tandy do that? Oh, good. We still have that. That's right. We still have that. So that's the, the, the why did Tandy do that question of the day. So, um, well, we'll simmer on that mystery for a while. Uh, I think first up we had Brian Weasler had a trailer load to show us today. Well, I don't, don't know about a trailer load, but uh, maybe an item or two. An item <laughs> or two. Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, as a follow-up uh, to a question that Ron Delvaux had last week. Yay! Uh, Ron was uh, sharing his uh, newspaper version of the Rainbow Magazine, and on the back cover had some uh, Voltmace uh, joysticks. And yes, Ron, I do have some. Cool. Because <laughs> yeah, I did ask that, and you were, I think you were not available at the time. Yeah. So uh, they were the. Uh, it was a joystick made over in the over in England, and it had uh, it had three buttons on it. Looks something like this. So, yep. So, and it had uh, ones with red and green buttons. So, tip yes. It, uh, tip it back just a sl slight bit. There you go. Volt okay. mace, huh? Mm -hmm. Yep. They made, like uh, they made a medieval maces. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, it, it operates a bit. Uh, it, it, it's about the size of a Black Beauty joystick, but it is a self centering type joystick, and there's no way to turn it off, but it is a uh, self centering joystick. You know, What's, if it's a digital or an analog or. It's analog. What's the oh. sticker on the back there? It just I'm says sure voice, you... voice LTD and where it was made and such. I'm Over sure you can pull some springs out and make it a non-self-centering. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Karen says, I think they advertise those for pretty much every platform. Yep. Is there, yeah, is a... there a city in China named England? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because <laughs> there's no, a there... USA. <laughs> that's right these, these quite are these are uh these are uh on ebay 
a lot, but if you uh, when you search for them, though, a lot of them are for the uh, the BBC. And then uh, the next thing I, I just want to this is a kind of I want to get an opinion of the panel, if I may. Uh, you may have, have seen lots my of those <laughs> lots of opinions, and you're funny looking too. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't cost too much extra, do they? No, no, no. opinions are free. Um, so on Facebook, I had done a couple posts. One was asking about the, uh, this joystick here, the commander, uh, deluxe, um, because of, a a, a, a post that I had saw where, uh, um, somebody had done a YouTube video there, uh, Atari age had done a video and, uh, showed some joysticks. And this was like the fourth one that they had. And he said it was for the color computer and I couldn't find anything out about it. And so I was doing some searching and I, did another post about it, talked about it, and uh, Ron Delvaux again um, <laughs> had found in the November 84 issue of the Rainbow, uh, they had done an article where they were showing some uh, various items that you could buy for Christmas. And this was one that was there. And in that article, uh, they talked about the fact that CRC um, had basically, uh, they said these were made for a different model, but they were. They were modifying them and reselling them for the cocoa. So they, there was never one made by this company. The, the company is uh, Comrex, C-O-M-R-E-X. Uh, they basically made them for the uh, the uh, Atari and, and uh, Commodore and also the Apple, but they weren't making one specifically for the cocoa. And so I guess my question to the panel is, I'd like to make one of these because it was available at the time, but... As a collector, I like to collect the original items, but this was never really an original cocoa item. It was a company that was taking them and modding them and reselling them for the cocoa. So, kind of like Rick does with the IBM or crafts. Exactly. So, I want to take this end off and make it cocoa. Yes or no? Should make I? It, Should I not? Make no. Make, make an, adapter. A, an adapter. Yeah. Do you yeah. have two? I have two. Well, then you can do one. Make an adapter. Yeah, because then I you can use it on multiple machines. The only reason why an adapter might work, and I haven't toned it out yet, is that is inside here. It depends on how the pots are wired. Right. If the pots are, if the pots are wired to be resistive, it's not going to work for the cocoa. It has to be wired as a voltage divider. Divider. Yeah. So another so, would be so an adapter may not work. Cable. Right. If you do the whole cable, including the strain relief, you can always revert it back. I you could just have a joystick. The cocoa joystick cable to sacrifice to the project. Right. So I haven't I haven't uh, toned it out to see what it's going to take to uh, uh, to mod it. It might be as simple as just moving two wires inside and moving it to uh, to the uh, joystick ground or to the Brian, button ground. What's, what's what's the chance you're going to buy two more? I mean, you know, mod those two and then just have two more that have the universal uh, end on it. Are you encouraging Brian to get more stuff, Ron? Are you yeah. nuts? Well, yes. Who, no. who needs the common ones? Make, make the special one, and you know right. everyone's got an Atari version. I Ron's mean, it's, an it, enabler. It, it's possible that one of these might pop up on eBay, but I'm not going to hold my breath out. Um, so, um, as a collector and wanting, because one of my goals is to try to get all the different joysticks that were available back in the day, and so I guess I, I, I was going to feel comfortable with replacing the end because. That was done back then, anyway. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that, that, that was kind of where I was at. 
but it sounds like maybe you guys are more to mm. like, well, replace the cable and then you can kind of, re the only thing is replacing the cable. You can see here how it has kind of that tapered relief there. So I'm going to end up, if I just replace the cable, mm. I'm going to end up with a bigger hole in there. So I don't know. But if, if this company uh. was just changing the plug, like you say, that means an adapter would work. Right. If it, like I said, oh, I need to tone, if, I need to tone it out. If this, if it's, if the pots are wired inside as a voltage divider, then an adapter should work. Well, but if, if they were they're, changing, if they were if they changing were, the plug, there's no reason why they weren't modifying the inside as well. Correct. Yep. They, yeah. they probably may have, uh, if it was wired resistively, they would have had to open the cover, move a few wires around, and then also replace the plug in order to make them cocoa. So compatible. I know, I know PC joysticks did not use a voltage divider. Did Apple or Commodore? No, the now, PC joysticks didn't use a voltage divider, but they did use the ground for the fire buttons. Right. So you had all the voltages inside the joystick to convert it. Otherwise, right. you had yeah. to replace the whole wire if you didn't have that spurious ground. That they sent out right. 8-Bits in the Basement <laughs> recently did a video where he shows about modifying um, PC joysticks because of the availability and expense of getting a, a, a Coco-type joystick over there. So. He did a whole video where he showed uh, taking an IBM yeah. type joystick and modifying it. The Apple IIs used a, a modification of the 555 timer. It's actually a quad 555 called the 558. And they basically look at a capacitive value and they basically have a clock. So, oh, okay. yeah. yeah so they're probably joysticks. doing it resistively then. So, so the, yeah. uh, the, the main marker in the machine itself is do you have to calibrate the joysticks or not? Because resistive joysticks, you quite often have to calibrate them. Mm -hmm. And potentiometer, the voltage divider, you don't calibrate. It self-centers by the nature of the beast. Right. So, I should also mention that CRC, in case anybody doesn't know, uh, is the company that actually did the hardware manufacturing for Disto. Correct. Yep. Sorry. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So your so. Super Controller 2s and all that kind of stuff from Disto, the 2 meg, 1 meg upgrade boards, all that stuff was actually manufactured by CRC, the same ones who did these joysticks for the Coco. Tony DiStefano, good right. Italian. <laughs> so I'm kind of leaning towards modifying one just to be able to have one to show, like you know, this was this was another option available back in the day. Uh, you could have bought it for thirty dollars, and uh, you know, maybe even put a little label on it indicating that I modded it versus, uh, let's say, CRC. But they didn't change the. Uh, there are a couple people in the community that have uh, that have the ones from back in the day that were modded, and they didn't change the label on it or anything. So there's really no way of knowing, like. Like uh, on this one here, it's model number uh, CR401, and it wasn't like they put a different label on it and called it, you know, 402 or something like that, you know. So they were just taking it and putting, taking the ends off. And and I remember John Strom making a comment too that uh, it was very common back in the day that he would uh, the company that he had, uh, they were modding joysticks and reselling them as well at uh, I'm assuming maybe like Rainbow Fest. Hey Brian, if you uh, magnified that uh, picture that was in the uh, Greenbow magazine. Could you tell if it had lettering on that black area at the top where it says Commander? Mm. I, I could I, when I first looked at it, I I didn't think it was lettered at all. It was just like a black um, rectangle. Well, the one that Atari H has in his video there, um, he actually had sold to Neil Blanchard, and and Neil and I were chat uh, chatting about it, and his looks just like this one from all aspects. Oh, it does have yep. lettering on it. Yeah, but did yeah, the just one the same? Could you tell if there was lettering on the one in the magazine? Um, or it was just too far away or lo too probably too low far res? away. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, okay. Well, thanks hey, for everybody's input. Go ahead. Hey, Curtis. Yeah. Uh, 
Mark Siegel said he wasn't sure why the eight volt, but he guessed it maybe was to have more current available. Talking about the uh, eight volt uh, uh, regulator in, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. He also said, uh, "Has anyone measured it to make sure it's really eight volts?" <laughs> I have. Well, we can assume because it's a seventy-eight oh eight feeding it that unless you're really abusing something, it's eight volts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, the next thing I'd like to share with you guys is uh, let me uh, switch cameras here. We're doing. There we go. So I picked up this here, and uh, I'm not sure if this is the actual manual that came in or or not, but this was uh, where it was at. And uh, I, I picked this up off of eBay, and uh, let me show you what's inside here and what really caught my eye. So this was a, a whole group of these uh, technical uh uh, software and and some of this here David Lab might like. So this this yeah. here's a section here where it talks about the, the the color computer, the FDC and drive verification test, and it it goes through the whole thing here. Um, some of these were actually available on a cassette, or and you'll see here in a minute they they had a program that allowed you to create a cassette for doing different diagnostics on the um, uh, on the floppy drives. In here also was this uh, uh, for the technical software was for the the, the color computer. Uh, for the drive alignment software. And it talks about using an oscilloscope uh, to do some of that. And here's a, here's another one here for the, uh, the FDC uh, calibration uh, for doing the color computer for, for the uh, alignment as well. And then here's the one that really caught my eye. Oh, uh, I grabbed too far. Here we are. The Tandy Color Computer 3 Diagnostic Manual. And from what I understand, uh, Alan and I were talking about this. Uh, the manual has been up on the archive uh, for a while, but we never had the software. And in the listing here, they actually had two copies of the software. And these are both the same. And uh, so we got kind of excited about that. And so I pulled a floppy drive out, cleaned it all up, had it ready to go. And, of course, I had a 50-50 chance. The one disc... Um, it, it, uh, you could do a dur on it though, but trying to do a backup of it, it failed. But then the second disc, it was able to read and we were able to get a backup of, of this floppy software. So yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, in the, well, um, you're not saying that color computer three diagnostic stuff was on there, was it? Yes, it was. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. And then also on that disc was also the CAS files for all these, uh, calibration programs. Nice. So let's see here. Yeah, because uh, if your drive was way out of whack, you wouldn't be able to load the diagnostic software. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you need a cassette file. <laughs> now, do you remember back in the day they had uh, Dyson discs that had, uh, <sighs> yep. that yes. were like certified that you could, you know, measure your floppy drive speed and stuff? Yep. This here uses, uh, they, they run the program and they use an oscilloscope for, uh, for doing the, the troubleshooting. So these are the programs that were on there. There's a um, a MEM test for the Color Computer 3 that'll do both 128 and 512. Uh, there's an IRQ test, uh, frequency test, a color, two different color tests. There's a Color 64 and then a Color, uh, color Computer 3 video test, a CPU test. And all that does is basically does the uh, high speed poke, essentially. Um, the uh, I can't remember what the P... Uh, P 
PSU test was. We can look at it there. Uh, there's a PAL test. Um, I'm not sure what the VP uh, age was. Go ahead. The PSU one is yeah. pseudo color. It's te- it's similar. Oh, artifact colors. Oh, the artifact colors. Correct. Yep. Thank you. Yep. All right. And then there's the vertical paging test, and there's a memory banking test, and uh, the VDG mode test. And the the MM uh, banking one there is uh, supposed to exercise the uh, memory management unit. So do all these? Um, if you go to page seven, you'll see the a code for it, or or what? Um, no, they just they talk about the um, how to how how to actually kind of like run the run the test and use it. Oh, okay. So if you guys have a minute here, I can switch again, camera sources, and we can run some of these if you like. Yeah, I've actually never seen any of these run before, so. Let me bring my, uh, my cocoa yeah, in some here. Some of us could actually use that. <laughs> right. right, and so I, we, are, we have already created a disk image, and I'm going to finish, I'm going to scan in those other programs, and um, I'll get that all uploaded. Okay, we'll wait for the uh, that little image to disappear there. Those boxes are so slow. Uh, come on here. Let's see where are we at here. Okay, here we go. There it is. Okay. So here's the uh, the um, these those are those uh, pro, uh, calibration programs I was talking about for the uh, uh, for the hard drive. Um, Alan, you dug into this one a little bit. Do you remember what that uh, the Xbox one was? The ancient box test? Like the... Uh, the PI, uh, yes. The multi-pack interface. Yeah, multi-pack, that's right. Okay. And what did, did, did it test for compatibility? That's what it was doing? Uh, I think it just tested whether it was switching between slots or something like that. Okay. Did it actually check to see if you had the uh, Coco 3 upgraded version of it? Not that I remember. Well, we can find out. And we can dig into that one. So here's the um, here's the MEM test. And uh, so you can see here that you can do uh, you can single or continuous. You can do a RAM test. Uh, just exit to basic here. So I'll do number two here. And essentially, it's just going to go through and just start checking the RAM. This is a 128 machine here. So, you know, either way, there it goes. Mem test plus for the Coco. Uh, looks like failures to me. Like Where are you, you seeing? Uh, well, but if, generally, if you, do, if you get a rote and red, they're not going to match. It looks okay. like you're one bit off. Mm, interesting. You could pause that, pass, pause that somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, hit this the uh, asterisk. Yep. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, showing uh, faults. Interesting. So that's your emulator. Uh, this is a real hardware. Oh, how, how did you read that <laughs> in real time? <laughs> Isn't that the SDC? And, and over a Zoom link. <laughs> right, you're you working off the SCC, aren't you? He's just that good. I guess okay. so. <laughs> so, isn't the SCC different? Not for RAM, it shouldn't be. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a RAM test. The SDC has nothing to do with RAM. Okay. So it's like if you write to it, you should be able to read the same thing back. What kind of RAM is in this machine? Is it SRAM or a factory? The 128K. All right. Yep. So if this passes at the end, then what? Well, it won't be passing judging by this because it's it's mismatching. <laughs> I'm not sure how much farther we have to go. Uh, who's our hexadecimal guys here? Can you tell well, where we are? Wouldn't it's, it say it's I one mean, bit off in the lower bank? Um, well, we haven't even hit 4K end? yet. Yeah. Right. We just well, I nothing. don't think everybody wants to sit here for hours watching this go right. <laughs> to test the RAM. <laughs> um, hang on, but but Mike's doing. The book. Is it checking the RAM well, wait a minute from here. zero? Because on a 128K RAM system, you don't actually have RAM down there. Well, this is, kind of, this, this is kind of throwing me a little bit here because look at his memory equals 512. And this does not yeah, have 512 yeah. in it. This That's is not totally a 512 funny in it. there. <sighs> yeah, this is kind of interesting. I, don't, I, I could have swore when I ran this the other day, it said 128 on it. It's interesting. <laughs> now I'm kind of curious as what's going on here. Yeah, Frank in the chat is saying it looks like a byte shift error common with MTRAM. This is the same Coco you ran the test on before, too? Yeah, it's the one I've had at home for a while here, yeah. Yeah, this one's unmodified. It's even had, it's not even uh, had the warranty seal broken on it. I just wonder if it would work different if you run it from the floppy on a disk controller. It shouldn't, um, it shouldn't run any differently. It's pretty obvious the error is that it's misdetected the amount of RAM. Why did it do that? We don't know, but the RAM test isn't going to work if it's expecting. Yeah, Ron, the, the RAM <laughs> test doesn't access the floppy controller's memory space at all. So okay, but it's testing RAM only. Maybe there's something else, though. Yeah, well, we'll figure it out. What else we got? Oops, well, hold on here. Look at uh now it says let me do one uh, let me do one thing real quick here. I, I I jumped too quickly. Maybe just break out and run the file on its own so you don't have SD DCX in there as well. Notice it says memory equals question mark. It doesn't know when it starts. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Well, so much for uh Good demo here, guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, your Coco has problems. <laughs> yes, it does. There we go. Well, do you this have another Do you have another Coco you can get? Well, that's, a, that's an official Microsoft demonstration. There you go. Right. <laughs> well, let's go on here. We'll go down to the... Uh, so this program right here, this was the, the Make CAS. This is what you could use to uh, make, us, make the uh, cassettes that were, were being used. So here's the interrupt test here. I'm not sure what I'm really understanding here. Uh, maybe you guys would understand. What this is the gimme uh, interrupt sources. It's going through one by one. Okay. Because you can see it's doing the horizontal, the vertical, and now it's doing a serial. Yeah, the programmable timer is the first one. Yep. Well, we do have a manual for this. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, we do. I was just trying to just kind of verbally just kind of go through it here real quick so everybody could see. So we're not taking a whole lot of time here. Who reads manuals? <laughs> right. <laughs> when something screws up, you read it. Right. Mm. <laughs> that's the FIRQ test. Yeah. 
You get the same exact same interrupts, but you can trigger an IFIRQ or an IRQ, depending on how you program the gimme. And that bit works. I want to see the 64 color test. So this one's kind of interesting. And we'll do RGB. So what's kind of neat about this one is you can use a joystick. If you kind of see in the middle, there's a little bit of a cursor. And as you hover, I don't know why this joystick's getting a little uh, little sketchy here. I don't know why it keeps doing this to me. But if you uh, if you hover over whatever color you hover over, it changes the uh, background the to, that, to that color. Yeah. So you can match all the other colors against your background. Cool. Awesome. That's definitely a different presentation than most of the other 64 color things I've seen. Yeah. I would have liked that when I was actively writing games and stuff to match all the colors against each other quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You could see the contrast between them immediately. That's quite nice, actually. So you can pick the right colors that'll show up and not kind of run into each other. I think the, the, the pot on this joystick is a little sketchy here. I need to probably clean it a little bit. But you, know, right. the, yeah. you need to convert that commander. Right. There you go. <laughs> There's going to be a little more fluidity out of this thing here. There we go, a little bit better. Yeah, the joystick just had to warm up, that's all. There you go. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, David, David Lord in the chat saying the serial interrupt didn't trigger. I'm assuming that's probably because you didn't have anything plugged into the RS-232 port. <laughs> Correct. Oh, right. And then you got a... This one here, I think when you hover over a color and you click on it, it changes the uh, the border, the outside border there. So it would, it, it would have cost a little more to have them identify which uh, colors are showing up and stuff, you know. Right. <clears throat> so they didn't do that. So here's another set of series tests here. This is the alpha mode test. We had underlines? Oh, wow. They actually yeah. supported the 32 and 64 column gimme modes. I'm, that surprises me. Well, they are the um, makers of it, right? Yeah, but they didn't actually support that in basic or anything. But the engineers did. You don't see any smoke rolling out of your computer right now, do you? No. Okay. No, no. Does, does this thing show the rumored 256 color mode? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That, here, the mystery's finally solved. <laughs> Stop the demo before we get to that part, Brian. <laughs> It'll just be your secret. Right. Of course, this one's not actually telling you what mode you're actually looking at, but yeah. Nah. Oh, for monitor alignments. Right. And that would yeah, this would be nice on a CMA. The old pincushion fixer. Yeah. <sighs> I know so that one is actually copyrighted in 1987. So this either was modified a few times or it came out months after the Coco 3 itself came out. I wonder if it would be any different with the old or the new gimme. Yeah, that would be an interesting evening. The, the 64 color test might, because the timing would be slightly different. 
So you can see here when it um, how it, it kind of drew that there, and then you can see how it draws a little bit faster. Yeah, twice as fast because it kicks the CP from 0.895 to 1.78 megahertz. Right, Which I think that's the you got in there. I don't know. I, uh, I don't, I've never had the cover off on this one. You don't, you don't have to. You can. Uh, yeah, there's a software utility that you can use. A couple right. actually. Sockmaster has one, and then Todd Wells has his generalized one. Yeah, I don't know if I have them on my machine here or not, or on my uh, SDC. Glenn Hewitt does too. So Sixty puts forth the idea of running this on emulators to see how accurate. Yeah, that's not a bad idea, <laughs> right? Now you're running a yeah, switcheroo. Can you switch it to composite to see it? There, there you go. go. Actually, if you did that Cocoa Three composite uh, video test, now it would actually show the proper colors for it, but. Which are totally different than RGB colors. So here's here's what I added on the RGB there, and then here's the composite. Yeah, they're set they're set up differently. So RGB goes from the darkest to the lightest of each of the color guns as you go through each of the bits, and composite is basically sixteen shades, and you add more white to it as you go to higher numbers, which you're kind of seeing when you have it in composite <sighs> mode there. Nick, of course, says nothing about that because he hates composite, but <laughs> geriatric mode. <laughs> uh. Let's see here. Okay, here's the. This should be quick. SG four, and then the uh, lowercase and stuff. I like how that one shows you the VDG bits that it's changing and what the result. Yep. <clears throat> be helpful for folks that are first tangling with the VDG and its weirdness. It, it'd be good for Coco Town because he literally just wrote a program to do this exact same thing that uh, <laughs> is one of the videos on the news we're talking about. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> how timely. Because yeah. this is compatible with the T1 VDG, so this actually applies to Coco 2s with the T1 as well. In fact, that exact program, I guess, would probably run that way on the T1 Coco 2. So the okay. Gimme is an emulator also. Yeah, it's emulating the SAM and the uh, part of the VDG, not all of it. Cool. What's XMEM, I wonder? PAL test. What What do they mean? Which PAL? The well, PAL, I thought it was PAL versus yeah. NTSC. Yeah. That's that what I'm wondering. Yeah. one is for an MC10 RAM expansion. Notice it'll say mem mc10 in the file name. You can kind of okay, see so it's cycling. going through each of the different circles there and cycling through the colors, it looks like. Yep. Notice all the sparkly yep. glitches are yeah, appearing as you change. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't time it with the V-Sync. <laughs> yep. Oh, maybe it's, it's an 86, gimme. Yeah, without, when, of course, we wouldn't, being this never been opened, it wouldn't have the uh, the mod. Sparkly mod applied. Yeah. Actually, that happened on both gimmies, uh, Ron. I think it was just less right. on the 87. Yeah. If, if you right. do, if you change pallets without timing it to the V-Sync, you can change it kind of halfway through a scan line, and then it kind of gets messy. 
for lack that's, of a better term. That's like explaining how my transmission works in my car. <laughs> Pull lever, it goes. Uh, let's see here, V page. That'll just. Uh... Well, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Back to that, too. And let's see here. Membank. Oh, so it's uh, flipping through the uh, different banks. Yep, and it's doing it properly at the top of the 512K space because that's where 128K appears. Yeah, the time I did that, that RAM test, I don't think realized did that correctly. Yeah. Notice how I was jumping between like zero, one, two, three, four. I mentioned that's where the uh, 512 resides. So it's flipping through them fast because they don't exist. Yeah. That'd be my guess too. Okay, and yeah, that was the last episode. So then this one here, yeah, this is it for the MC10. So, so can does. you load that V-Page <laughs> Bass one again? And then break out of it and just list it and see if it explains what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah, what it does is it shows <clears throat> stepping through stepping the gimme through various memory ranges while scrolling uh, or to trigger scrolling left and right and up into the corner and things like that. Yeah, but it goes by so quick you can't even see it did anything. So that's kind of a useless well, no, test. It looks like it? it's crashing back to uh, back to firmware. Can't remember if there's a way to, what's the way to pause it? Isn't there a way? Shift, uh, at. shift at. What's that? Shift, shift at. at. Okay. While it's going. Yep. yep. Okay. You can type with 80 too and it'd probably be a bit easier to pause it. Right. Nice. Right, so it pokes in a little ML or 24,000. Does the shift out start it and stop it again? Shift out pauses it and then you need to hit something like enter to restart it. Well, a little too fast for me there. It's just poking a loader. Uh, machine so machine. Language Try turning off the cocoa, letting it clear the ram then restart mm. uh, that's cool. I think it's mucking up some stuff there <laughs> maybe these tests are for 512k <laughs> maybe only. is there anything else you guys want me to check at all or do you want to go back in that, that again or no is there something else you guys want me to want to go back into something again or List the oh. MC10 one. Well, you, you need an MC10 to run it, Ron. <laughs> no, you can list it. You'll see the explanation. Yeah, that's not, not really a point because the, the tokens are different, aren't they? Right. Yeah, but it yeah. does list something. And, oh, game, right? and if it's a memory probably. test for the expansion, it's probably machine language anyway. Oh, yeah. I don't know Look if it would work anyway. The extension yeah. isn't basic. Yep. Right. Okay. Okay. 
Is there anything else you guys want to see from that at all? Or like I said, I'm well, going to hook, hook up the oscilloscope. Let's try your drives. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There we go. So we can end, end the show, put the floppy test in there and listen to David. There you go. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to scan in a PDF and get those, uh, get the manual scanned in and then, uh, upload the, uh, this disc image up there. So it'll be available for everybody. Nice. So, I, I did one question. Was there an equivalent of this for the Coco one or two as well? Like a diagnostic disc that did a bunch of tests that Tandy officially had internally. Mm, just a couple of cartridges. They had, the, they had the cartridge for the one. Yeah, but that only like went up to 16K, so it didn't work in all the one models properly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, on the edge of the manual here, they, um, let's see here. Let me do this here. Let's see here. So on the edge of the manual, I got this kind of zoomed out a little bit. You can, it, it does say, uh, I can't quite hold it right here. Model 1-3. Yeah, one, one, two, three. Three. Well, if it's Model 2 Diagnostics, that'll be an 8-inch disc. Yeah. So, I mean, that was the, like I said, I don't know. By the way this looks, this may have been the way it was put together for. Um, one of the shops. Yeah. I mean, by Model 123, they may have meant the TRS-80CC Model 123, which would be the Coco 123. Yeah. And they just stuck it in a standard period correct uh, Model 1. Yeah, because they didn't list the Model 4. Right. Well, and and this in these AXX numbers aren't isn't that wasn't that the service type numbers? Well, those are parts, yeah. Yeah, for the part number, yeah. Right. Yeah, but, but notice that disc says MS DOS on it. And TRS DOS, so it's just a generic label, I think, for all of it. Right. Yeah. I think I think it says technician series and all that stuff, a generic label for all their machines, and then they would line print on the label what specific one that particular disc was for. Did Whatever you check to see that both discs are exactly the same? I mean, you know, read it, look at it. Well, I did a Dura, and the Dura was the same, but the one disc would not read. It just gave me a directory. Oh, that's why there's two of them, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so, especially if you're messing around with disc diagnostics, who knows what you can do? Right. <laughs> <laughs> my write pattern worked, but my diagnostic disc is gone. Okay, let's see here. So, um, there was two because the guys would forget forget it in the drive when they sent it back out. It, it would be there interesting to see that uh, program work that was missing a, a you know, a, a bit um, on a different Cocoa. Since you yeah, that does seem kind of odd that it's not registering your 128K properly. Yeah, I, I thought that was right. kind of odd too. And after that, all other results are bogus. Yeah. Right. So here's a couple of uh, Gold ceramic disc that I got here. I can't remember. They, they don't have the uh, right numbers on them, though, but the um, I can't remember which one of these was a memory management unit, and uh, the other one was a uh, let me see here. I had to get a, like a cross reference. Well, a memory focus, management focus. unit is the Motorola 6829. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's the 6829. And then this one here was the um, DMA chip or something. Uh, let's see here. That was the, it's supposed to be that that number is supposed to be similar to the 6821. This one. Oh, here. So oh, yeah. So this is supposed to be a P I don't know. I, I, I got that one cocoa here that had a ceramic, um, 6809 in it. And, uh, it just kind of put me on a little kick of the, uh, of the ceramics. And so I, I did a little search and so like it came across these, I thought maybe might be kind of fun to maybe try them out and see if they actually work or not. So. No, no numbers on the bottom. No, nope, no numbers on the bottom. 
Okay, that sixty-eight twenty-nine is not going to go into your cocoa. Yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering right. because it's a, it's a little different there um, because yeah, some no, of the pinup. The but you I... and the cocoa is built into the gimme chip. Okay. That is a standalone MMU chip that you could use on like a single board computer or or a gimmicks right. or gimmicks or yeah. Okay, very good. So it does the same kind of thing as what the uh, MMU in the gimme chip does, but it's a standalone chip. And there it is, standing alone. Right. <laughs> but I just, I, I guess I just kind of picked them up, though they weren't terribly expensive, and I don't know, they're just kind of cool. Uh, on the on, on the screen here, it looks kind of purpley, though. But uh, in real life, you know, it has kind of, or it looks kind of blue. But in real life, it's kind of a kind of a gray purple color, and the gold and everything. Oh, I just got that. That's kind of cool. So, what's the actual four digit number on the bottom chip? I can't make it out. That one. What are you? Sixty-eight thirty-one. I can't read it. No, I can't read it either. Six X thirty-one. It? It's a eight four five one eighty four fifty one eight four five one. I'll stop moving here to. Okay, we've switched. Is that not a day code? Maybe. Uh, I think the CM whatever would be a date. We may actually be off in in Intel or Zilog or something. There, who knows? eighty four fifty one. That sounds like an Intel part to me. I don't right? know what it would be, but is that a, a bird logo at the top or a V or what? Uh, it's kind of a kind of a V shape with a line through it. Yeah, it was kind of different. Hmm. Okay, I just thought it was Jerem. They, they have that. Um, I think that's VLSI. They have that. The, yeah. Oh, they have that feature in um, Google Search where you can take a picture of it and it'll try and match it up with something else. Oh, sure. Yep. Try it. Yeah, I'll have to do that. As a bit of an aside, too, I was doing some research for the games page, which is totally unrelated to what we're talking about here, but I also happened to be going through the Tier City Microcomputer News, and uh, there was a mention from John Shirley in one of his uh, columns that uh, Tandy worked with Motorola to make the SAM chip, the 6883, or you know, a few other chip numbers that it's uh, known for, and apparently that was a joint venture, which is why it's unique to the Cocoa and the Dragon. Um, that was not a, a strict Motorola chip. So Tandy collaborated to make the chip and shared it with Tan, uh, Dragon? Well, I think they, they collaborated with Motorola to make it because the whole point from John Shirley's column I was describing is that the SAM was designed to replace a whole bunch of chips with one chip to make it cheaper, you know, following the standard Tandy mantra. Mm -hmm. So I think I guess they kind of commissioned and worked together is how John specifically put it that uh, to make that chip, to make the cocoa cheaper. Okay. Meet. Also, he uh, also acknowledged the fact that, uh, of the Coco being the nickname for it. That was in a 1982 one. I don't remember exactly which issue, but that, that he officially acknowledged it, too. Because I know they never sold it except in Canada that way, as far as I know. Unless they did in Australia, Nick. Did they call it the Coco in official ads for Radio Shack? Well, don't, no, we have a, no. don't we have a no, video of Coco 2 being... Yeah, that's the Canada one I was telling you. Talking no, about. Th this is an American one we saw. Calling it Coco 2? Yeah, was mm -hmm. it Coco 2? No, I don't remember that one. That, Video. Uh, you mean one of the one one of the clips in the ad bank, uh, the uh, the commercial bank? Yeah, something like that. Yep. Yeah, I know the French one did, but I don't remember the U.S. Yeah, those, those are yes. Canadian ads because we have both the English and a French one with exactly the same video. I know, but there was a, an American one. 
and it was like late before Coco oh, three came look. up. Yeah, that might be a Canadian English one, possibly, but yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't remember there being an official one well, for the I for the U.S. and anyway, but I maybe remember I'm wrong too. I'll look on my. I did have one other thing here, real quick, to show you guys, if I may. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Okay. Let me switch back over to this camera here. I mark you off to highlight it. Oh, uh, okay. I'll start to look for the other commercial. Ah. Oh, what? I did ahead of Hang the on. airplane. Hang on, uh, Brian. I don't know what I did to you. Oh, stopped your video. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is that dangerous button thing we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah, mouse jumped. Um, you know what? I don't see the highlight anymore for him. What happened? His video's out. He's back to his uh, placeholder. Yeah, yeah you have to turn me. your video back on, Brian, if you can. I I do when I try to click my video on it, it says you can't start your video because the host has stopped it. Okay. Uh okay, uh, try that. Now try it. Okay, let's see here. There yeah. we go. There we go. It's okay. Back. Hey, whatever you did there, Mark, don't do that again. <laughs> I will try not to. <laughs> so a while back here, um, I had shared this here. Let me zoom out just a little bit more. There we go. So this was a uh serial apparel interface, and I bought it from Australia. And I, I know we were talking to Nick about it to see if it was one that looked kind of familiar. And um, I really haven't been able to find any information about it. But then recently there was another listing on eBay from a seller in Australia. And basically it was just a bunch of random manuals. Well, in that set of random manuals was <laughs> the manual for the MK1 parallel printer interface. Or the color computer. Except they're spelling color the American way, not the Australian way. Well, Yay. the rest of the world way. Right. And it, it was manufactured in Australia because in here it talks about... Um, an address? It has an address here that was in... Uh, well, I New can't South pronounce Wales it. looks like, yeah. Sydney, I'm not Who's sure. Who's it by? It's, uh, let's see here. Let me see if I can zoom in a little bit more here. Yeah, if you can't say it, someone else can. <laughs> G and G. Yeah, Fiala. Fiala or something. Does that sound any Fiala at all? Yeah. Not never heard of them. Obviously, it must have been a some cocoa user there it was just building him in a, in, in a bedroom ma manufacturer. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> so, but it it just goes through and just kind of talks about the. Uh, how to use it? Yep. How to use it? Basically, the different, uh, you know, the the switches and the and the rotary switches. Yeah, and there's some pokes like you have to do to change the baud rate for your printer. And... Yep. So I thought that was kind of kind of nice to. I'm surprised they spelled it C O L O R though. Manufacturing and sold in well, Australia. On the top of the color computer, it says that C O L O R. Oh, well, Tandy, that makes sense because they've bulk manufactured labels, etc., for it. Well, so why would they want to make the, a special run? They just use the well, proper brand name, right? Yeah, I guess maybe. Yeah, well, yeah, and um, the the earlier original color computers did say C O L O R, even in Australia. It's only um, in the later, I think, Coco Twos, you had some that spelt it O U R as 
the Tandy Kalur computer. Kalur. <laughs> no. Well, we we still say color, but uh, yeah. So anyway, I wanted to share that. I mean, the other the other stuff that was with it is uh, nothing really uh, spectacular at all. It's stuff. It's just random manuals from from different software applications that we all knew and stuff like that. So I don't I won't take the time to show that. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all of those, but uh, I might be able to match them up with some maybe other cartridges that I have. And uh, these are ones that are all scanned and on there. Cap ready to take it. Oh yeah, I mean they're uh, it's it's none of it's third party stuff. So I mean, oh, it's all it's, like uh, you know common, Tandy yeah. related. Okay, yep. So time bomb. Here's the. These are all part of the educational series that was out there. Yeah, it's a children's computer workshop. Yep. Tandy typing tutor. This is actually an MC10 one right here. Uh, the high res print utility. The little program catalog that was available at the time uh trs copy there for the os yeah that's a read disk basic disks uh read and write to them from uh, os9 uh there was a uh here was a desk mate there ron's happy now there you go <laughs> and then um let's see here let me come on just a little bit further here uh then also uh there was a whole handful of those templates that were available for the uh uh, for so it's like MicroPainter Art Gallery, that kind of stuff, or logo, yep. or what? Yep, this was a well. Uh, so the, you had the uh, the graphics pack. One of them went with the graphics pack, and then there was also okay. this this manual here for color profile, and there was a color logo manual, and then uh, this one here is kind of stapled together, which uh, but it was the art gallery, and one of them went with the art gallery. Yeah, I remember the art gallery one. Yep. That was, that was funny because the Chickler keyboard was an advantage that you could make these templates for complicated programs. The third parties did it too, like the master control for programming basic with, you know, clear and a letter to create a keyboard in one or two keystrokes. But as soon as they upgraded the keyboard to a better keyboard that everybody liked, all these quit working because you couldn't put them on anymore. Right. right. And these two were the same, but they, for some reason, they, they, uh, whoops. These two here are the same, but for some reason, they cut the bottom out of this one here. You can see it where it's actually cut. So I'm not sure. If it was just cracked or something, and someone chopped it up, but uh, or were anyway. they attempting to make it fit a new keyboard, the newer style keyboard? Oh, maybe. Right. So, well, anyway, well, that's all I'd like to share for uh, for today. I got more to more to show, but I can uh, really uh, spread the I can, <laughs> I, can, I can I can I can spread the I can spread the joy out. So <laughs> I don't want to take up the whole show of you know three hour marathon of uh what's brian got to we really today. do need to get you a blurb like ron's garage has uh <laughs> right just make a segment out of you we'll call it brian brian weasler's u-haul or something there you go <laughs> so Weasel, but uh weasler board brian's there warehouse there you go so brian weasler's warehouse yeah, yeah that's it. i kind of it runs off the tongue good two w's that works w -W. right there you go. <laughs> Well, I thought you guys might have get a, get, might have enjoyed that uh, that color computer three diagnostic package. That was kind of the main thing I wanted to really share with everybody today. I thought that was kind of a nice little find there. So, yeah, the fact you actually found the discs, like you said, some of that stuff has been in the archive, and I have noticed it before the manuals, but the actual software itself. And it was kind of interesting because the software, looking at the dates on them, if some was written in like December of '86, some was in January of '87. So. Mm -hmm. I would have thought those would have been done before they started manufacturing and selling because they would have been on sale since September, October. 
but it looks like they didn't even write the diagnostics, you know, for another four or five months afterwards. Right. So how did they check things before then is my question. Right. We, we couldn't. <laughs> not that, not well, that I, they really ever broke, but, you know. Well, you know, well, the dead pile gets so big, you got to finish the diagnostic software so you can yeah. work your way through it. You got a line up here in aisle five for your diagnostic programmer. Yeah. Right. Probably they probably created it as a result of complaints from the service department. Right. They were getting the big dead pile of stuff that they haven't had time to fix yet. Right. <laughs> or maybe they were buying third party ones up until then. Yeah, we should really have our own. I don't know. Because so, the drives, no. uh, other than the very first generation one, you could always just pull them out and stick them in like a Model 4 or something. And do the alignments. Okay. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, some interesting stuff in there. Anybody else have any updates or acquisitions to talk about? That sounds like a resounding no in silence. Right. Just starting up my old projects again, so I don't really have anything to show off yet. So. Yeah, yeah, I did a minor web page update. I finished my 1982 games timeline so I can get back to some software development. I have a couple of interesting things on Ron's garage. If you want to look at it sometime, you don't have to do it here, though. Uh, how many do you got? If, if it's not too many, we can do it right now. No, nah, it's okay. People can go there. Okay. Okay. It's on Facebook. <sighs> All right. Uh, ready for the game on results? Is Ken still here? No, but let's do it anyway. No, I'm not here anymore. Oh, okay. Say, oh, wait, shoot. We better wait, Ken. <laughs> All right. Ready to the news then? <laughs> Actually, physically, I'm here, just mentally, not really. <laughs> oh, so standard stuff. Okay. So when when did you want me to queue up uh, Taz's uh, cheat video? Um, right after, as soon as we start talking about the lair. Okay. So let's do a commercial break and then get into that. Or okay. we can go straight into the game on challenge. I don't care. Nah, we gotta we gotta do our uh, our zero zero. Hey, It's your good buddy, your good pal Amigo, and joined by that dastardly The Brent from ARG Presents. You're watching Coco Nation. I feel like that should have been longer. The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons Alex Gare, Brendan Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Kieran Anscombe, Coconut Bob, Daddy Burrito. Diego BF109, Don Barber, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Glenn Wabke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, John Bodefkarschaller, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Kevin Holloway, Mike Rayburn, Patrick Euland, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Allen Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, Terry Stiege, 
Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., Tony C., and William A. Thing. Thank you so much, patrons. Welcome to everybody's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord? Kaneko says, Hi, I'm Nick. I grew up with 486-DOS PCs and eventually started building my own in the Windows 98 era. Fell out of the hobby a bit after that and recently got back into it with microcomputers like the C64 and Atari 800XL. I mostly like to use my computers for playing games. Found out about this channel when researching Coco computers and recently purchased a 64K Coco 2. Just looking to learn more at this point. Thanks. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Boysen, Glenside Computer Club, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com. See you on Discord! Welcome everybody to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played The Lair, and we had a total of 15 people that submitted scores. They were Mr. Dave 6309 with 350, Jim Rye 1100, Coconut Bob 1190, Exile in Paradise 1670, Ed Rhodes, 2050, Tom C, 2665, Damon Beals, 2770, Sloopy Malibu, 2875, Shenley, 4045, Canadian Retro Things, 4050, Rich N, 4300, L. Curtis Boyle, 5660, Sabhead, 7360, Tasman, 21640, and this week's number one score belongs to Buck Owens with 105,700. Thanks, everybody that played, and we will see you again next week. The Coco Nation salutes Buck Owens. Isn't that incorrect, though? I thought Taz wrapped the score. Oh, did he? That's what he said. <laughs> I just go off the pictures that people post. I didn't. Uh... Did he? Oh, so his score was a wrapped score. I believe so. Oh, I didn't see that posted. Because he posted Our a note about it, I think, in the game on challenge. But uh, that's when he found that glitch that we'll be talking about. Oh, OK. Controversy. It's <laughs> yeah, always controversy with me. I'm. Keep messing up on all the scores. He, he's he's in vacation mode. He's he's off in the cabin. So, yeah, <laughs> he says he did not post that score because it was exploiting. Yeah, no lawsuit. This that week. wouldn't stop Nick. I don't see why he wouldn't post it anyway. 
I don't do those sort of things. <laughs> I just Photoshop. Yeah, I didn't see anything on his uh, posting that uh, said that uh, it was wrapped. Actually, I just read it in the comments here. Scott says, I did not post that score. Okay. Oh, okay. I just remember he mentioned that he wrapped it. That's when he was talking about the... Ah, okay. I heard you guys talking about... Like, I knew there was a glitch, and somebody was doing a video about that, and um, I just... uh, Yeah, I didn't see anything posted about the wrapping. I I just assumed it would have been Buck Owens that wrapped it. (laughs) Like I said, those two are kind of like have a pretty good handy competition between each other. They both can pull off amazing scores way above the rest of us mere mortals. Yep. You live (laughs) another day, Ken. Oh, thank goodness. Didn't screw up this week. (laughs) I'm going to lose my job soon if I keep screwing up like this. Um, I I need a salute for Tasman. (laughs) Yeah, we do actually. Uh, we'll get into that uh, glitch in a second, but I uh, just want to say that I could not find any reviews of this game in any of the magazines, but Buck Owens, I believe, did um, send me towards a posting of a high score by James Walton. And interesting enough, if you look at the uh, splash screen for the game, it's uh, one of the people that made this game was Jay Walton. So. I'm assuming it's the same guy. Well, it was and Pittsburgh, so he's he's right around uh, Coco Man, I think. So Coco Man, you might have to look him up. So apparently, he, he did not know about the exploitation in the game because he only got 112,000. <laughs> he made it. <laughs> sure, that's not John Boy. They misspelled <laughs> Pittsburgh. Did they misspell Pittsburgh? I forgot to put the H on the end of it. But I'll, I'll quote Scott here when he was posting in the game on challenge here. And, and like you said, he's not to make the score because it's using a glitch. He said, yeah, I was playing last night trying to get a high score and came across this glitch by accident. At first, it only happened once in a game and I wasn't sure how I did it. Then it happened again and I saw what I was doing differently. So after playing for another hour or so, I was able to make the glitch happen anytime. So I then played the game using the glitch to roll over the score. I thought maybe it was something to do with using the disc version. So he loaded up the cassette version. The exact same thing happened. I made the glitch happen both with XWare and VCC, but I've not tried real hardware yet. That was back on the 11th. Okay. Um, so speaking of the glitch, I guess uh, you've got a video queued up about this glitch that uh, was discovered in this game. I, I, I might. Let me find it. Let me uh, mute the sound. They'll see if we can talk over it. I thought David Ladd was the only one that was supposed to be breaking stuff. Oh, no. Uh, we, we've been breaking well, for almost I, I years call it now. finding features. <laughs> yes. It's a feature for game. Okay, you guys can see that? Yep. It'll be coming up fairly okay. shortly. So, so basically, if you come in from the lower left corner and you just sit over top of the robot, it doesn't die, but you keep getting the points for it dying until your ah, timer okay. runs up. Interesting. 
No, I think actually I stumbled on this glitch too. I just thought there was two robots over top of each other. I thought I'd killed, like I kept moving. So obviously I did finally cover it up and kill it. But I did get like, you know, I saw two robots and I got like four points or four sets of points for it. I thought maybe two were over top of each other. But uh, after watching this, no, I actually had encountered it. I just never stopped moving long enough for it to actually happen repeatedly. All right, that's yeah, basically yeah, you're getting 40 points every second of your timer, basically. <laughs> and if you do it on the upper levels, you get more points. Yeah. I only made it to the third, I think, because the, the monsters or whatever you want to call them actually change, I think, what, six, seven times as you go through levels? Okay. Anyway, well, that's a, now that's we a, know. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say, now we know if we ever play this game again, I expect some really, really high scores. <laughs> <laughs> I expect low ones because after you wrap it, you get bored and quit. <laughs> <laughs> or there's a okay, well, patch that can be applied. Yeah, to, um, changing the hitbox. <laughs> no, the hitbox, I think, is fine. The problem is, is that it's it's counting the score up and then it should kill the robot that you've gotten the score from, but it's not doing that. For some reason, when you come from this angle, as opposed to another angle, it um, just constantly goes through the cycle of adding the points for killing the robot, don't kill the robot. Add the points for killing the robot, don't kill the robot. So it's not being taken off the map. Yeah. Well, now we have to find the guy that wrote this game and uh, show him this. That's why I was wondering if Jason was still on the call, because, I mean, he's fairly near Pittsburgh, and if that James Walton still lives there, he might be able to actually look him up. Hey, come fix this. I can take a look there and uh, hey, you know this you know this uh, 30 year old game that you wrote? There's a bug. We need you I to found a bug in the lair. Can you fix it? <laughs> <laughs> we want a refund. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want my money back from pirating this. <laughs> Why did you make this bug? Because it was cheaper? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you just never saw it. It's like the poltergeist cars yeah. level bug. Oh, yeah. yeah. He They're didn't have the right bugs. people play testing this game then. This is written by two people too, wasn't it? It was James and somebody else. Yeah, I think it says that the James wrote the story for it and it was coded by another guy. And I don't know if I've ever studied. I've writing. never found reviews for it. I don't even know if I've seen an ad for it, which is a problem I've been hitting on my timeline well, page because there's quite a few that don't have ads. Because you know the people who just you know made a game and then weren't able to afford Rainbow's advertising rates or whatever because those are not cheap at the time, and they just you know kind of tried to word of mouth it and you know end up. But also, you a few look at the, the high score for this game was submitted in 1990, which is pretty late in the life of a game that. Runs on the Cocoa one and two and three. Yeah, does it? Does there copyright date on the splash screen? I can't remember. Uh, let me check. Now, does this uh, game exhibit a tearing and a little it, bit? You know, scrolls. Is that what that is? Yeah, that's when you're not page flipping. That's why you try to um, use double buffering slash page flipping, whatever you want to call it. 
where you can raw draw on one screen while the player's seeing the other one nice and clean. And then once you're finished drawing, then you switch the pointer to show the other screen when it's fully rendered and ready to go. But that takes extra RAM. So a lot of the earlier Coco games, especially trying to run 16K and high res, would not be double buffering. You would see page tearing and Ripley okay. effects as you know things are getting drawn and stuff. I heard of it, but I, All right, so I didn't no, oh. see it. Go ahead. So the splash screen says it was written in 1985. Oh, wow. Five-year difference before you submitted the score? Yeah. That's odd. Maybe maybe it got lost in the mail. To himself? <laughs> I think he's well, one of the developers. The, the, the letter to, uh, to um, Rainbow to submit your score. Oh, that's possible. If it was from Canada Post, I I'd say that's just, pretty for sure. I was just looking on, because um, I was just uh, saw a story on uh, Twitter about a guy that got a package from 2014, and it was some part that he ordered for a computer back then, and it had been lost in the mail since 2014. <laughs> but it's oh, a completely aside that has nothing to do with the game, but I just saw that he posted in, in the chat here, uh, Grant who was planning on being on the show today, actually had a tornado go through his home. And he had some branches broke off and hit the house and his car. And he was still hoping to be able to get on, but he says, I'm still cleaning up from the good storms yesterday. I had a tree that fell on the house and the car. But uh, everybody's okay. It sounds like insurance will cover it. He's just, they're still cleaning up. So he chases tornadoes, right? Yeah, and that one chased and him. I, yeah, but he's doing it wrong. I'm going to call it the revenge of the tornado. That's no, it's work it. at home. <laughs> He's it's just a work <laughs> That's how he could have done COVID. He was always complaining he couldn't go out storm chasing during COVID. Well, you just had to wait till now and you would move it fine. Work at home. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> okay. Well, um, anybody else have any uh, tips or tricks for this game if you're not using the cheat? Um. Use the map that Other whoever than, made that what did. Yeah, that was Buck Owens made the map, so you could use the map that he made. Now, there was some talk about the uh, map thing. It asks if you want to load in your own map. Um, I'm assuming that there, nobody has any instruction books for this, so we don't no. know, but was there a way to make your own maps for this game? or I have no idea. Was that idea. a save game function that you maybe had? or? Uh, that would be my two guesses, but I don't think anybody got far, far enough in the code to see if there's uh actually while you're talking about it, maybe I'll take a look. Okay. Because I'm assuming if it has a way to load one in, if if the editor, if it's one where you can edit your own level, or if it's a save game state, it should have text in there saying, you know, do you wish to save the game? And if the text is in there, then there's probably some special key sequence or something to hit. Maybe any other yeah. uh, tips and tricks as far as that goes? Come on, people that submitted scores. Don't die. That's a good one. Watch watch your little timer there to uh don't get too greedy trying to kill the robots when you only have a couple seconds left on it because yep. that timer goes down. That's really a mistake quickly. I made numerous times. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can uh, make yeah. it across the room to that guy. Oh nope, I didn't do it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the luring thing that Buck board. mentioned, where you where you kind of lure the robots, you can kind of yeah. like get them into a quarter and then you know swing them around so that you can actually get a bunch of them at once and not get killed. That's that's one thing. Yeah. 
Well, in some of the later levels, you have to start luring them out of the way because they're blocking your all your paths to get to any of the power pellets. So, okay, hunting through the raw hex dump here. And other than that, of course, we played uh, Cuthbert in space this week, which. Uh, Kind of a unique game, how it will randomly throw you into a text screen where you have to just use your joystick to change coordinate numbers. I see a few people got annoyed by that because you don't get any points for doing it. And um, on that particular game, my suggestion is, especially if you're using a joystick, use the diagonal to move both numbers at once. So that, because... Uh, uh, it's two coordinate numbers, and one will be uh, go up or down, going left or right, and the other one will go up or down using up and down on the joystick. If you use the diagonals, you can move both numbers in the right direction to where you're trying to get it to, and you get through that a lot quicker. No, I don't see any of the text in, in there, not even those little blurbs like, you know, by Burmashave. So he's got them either bit shifted or something to not make them obvious, or he's got some... Something other than ASCII for doing it. Hmm. That'd require a bit more sleuthing, unfortunately. Which I won't be doing live on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably because they're drawing them in um, high res. Well, usually they you make a character set, and then you have actual raw text that just you know does a lookup table. But if they're skipping characters and stuff, it might be shifted down. So Scott Cooper is saying how sometimes the game spawns all the golden power pills in the middle of the map, so you'll be trapped by the bad guys from getting to them. But that's one of the cases where you just have to be very, very patiently luring the bad guys away from... Yeah. And often dying doing it. Yeah, and you get, you get what is it, 15 seconds? There's 15 timer thingies uh, when you respawn that you can actually... Run Kill over things, them. yeah, yeah. So you can try to like take one or two out of that are right near you as me immediately after respawning. I actually hadn't even noticed that until we were playing the live game on Thursday when somebody mentioned it. So <laughs> that's kind of like me in the other game where I finally discovered or re remembered that you can fire. <laughs> yes, and that's the other thing in Cuthbert and Space. You can fire while you're on the fuel stage. Don't, yep, I, don't I didn't do that the entire time I was playing it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it was pretty bad. I was pretty embarrassed. Anyways, does anybody have anything about either of those games to talk about? Ah, Cuthbert and Space is too hard, as a lot of UK games are. <laughs> Actually, I don't find it's that hard. The, bi the biggest way to get lots of points is uh, get greedy on the gold stage when the money's dropping from the sky. Find one little spot to uh, sit there and... Uh, Find a good spot to sit where you're uh, not going to go too high or too low and just uh, shoot all the asteroids or bad guys that are coming from the side of the screen and only catch the gold falling in that one area. And you can sit there for a long time and get a lot of gold. Okay. I never thought of that. I, I would suggest, than, you know, firing. That's actually a pretty helpful thing. Yeah. And firing, firing to kill the things. <laughs> but uh um, yeah, don't get greedy by trying to move all over the screen to catch stuff because it doesn't matter how many things you miss. You don't lose points for missing the things. 
But now, uh, is there a certain quantity that goes and then it stops anyways, or can you go until you get killed or you? I think re- you either go to land you get the ship. killed or you land it back in the ship. So if you oh, don't okay. want to lose a man, land back in the ship because I did it for a little bit. I mean, my highest score so far was not that good, but it was about eight thousand, and I got most of those points on the one stage just catching gold. Okay, that's that's a good thing to try. At least until Buck and, and Taz, you know, figure out some other way to rack the score. Okay, so the, up with some the, secret technique. The, the bad guys are cops, so you're you're basically killing cops in this game. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Oh, that Cuthbert. Yeah. All right. Fugitive from the law. <laughs> so, um, the lair was that was an okay game. It wasn't uh, all of that. Great. It was a little glitch. Uh, obviously, there's a cheat in it, and um, it suffered from de- some definite slowdown when you were doing stuff, like when, when it was redrawing the screen whenever you moved. Yeah, that's to be honest, that's that's a possible candidate uh, for a 6 or 9 patch. Yeah. If the game's popular enough to warrant me to hunt that down. If we could figure out that if you could make your own levels, it would be interesting to do that. Yeah, or even save the game state. Even that or would save be... save the game state, yeah. yeah. Depending on which way it was set up. And the thing I'm worried about is whoever pirated the game, if there was a separate program to create the levels, like Nick does when he's doing his internal development, and that did not get copied over because the guy didn't care, possibly. we may never be able to, to do that. Well, if Jason could look up the original author there, then... Uh... Yeah. I mean, the fact Maybe that they he... figured out the map already, I'm assuming he went through the code and found the table for the map, so honestly, you probably could write your own Yeah. Um, to do it, but... Even that, if you're up updating it to the 6309, even uh, take that uh, point scoring bug out of it. Figure out a way to fix to uh, close that little problem. Yeah, could could look for that. I usually just do those as just a quick you know patch just to make the game run smoother, faster, whatever. Oh no no! Now no, is no. the game I... speed already good enough? Though is it is it does it need to be sped up? <laughs> uh I I don't know if it just the drawing speed could be sped up or that no, I'll see how he does his timer. If he's using an IRQ, I might be able to keep the game speed and just speed up the graphic drawing so it's a bit less tarry, as as Ron said. But I think um, we should just give you as much work as we possibly can. Yeah, because I'm not busy enough fix, with all the fix other things. Crap, yeah, so. <laughs> there you go. I mean, uh, Tim and AJ will be covering that in the game on news here, but they just did a video covering a game suggestion I gave them, you know, a couple months ago already. <laughs> all right well um do it in ascii art there you go i am going to try and show some footage from uh the thursday night show this is probably going to end up being a slideshow but uh where is that there we go so so thursday night we had a uh, bunch of people in playing a few different games some people were just lazy and wanted to play one button games, so they played uh, Paul Shoemaker's. Uh... Yeah, yeah, we won't call out anybody like Mark on that though. So no, definitely yeah. not. Not going to call out Mark, but uh... hey, at least I played. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there is a bunch of us there again. the The turnouts are uh, doing pretty good for being in the middle of summer for people uh, coming in on Thursday nights and hanging out and having a good time playing some games 
it's like a little house party every week. So show up. It's, our, it's a cocoa version of a land party. That's what it is. There you go. <laughs> it's a modern land party. Though Rick is currently working on stuff to make real land parties possible in the future. So mm-hmm. Ooh. the only issue I have is Thursday seems to be the universal day for people to schedule things where they don't want to interrupt the weekend. I've got like six <laughs> things to do on Thursday night. <laughs> I blame Sloopy. He's the one that scheduled this. Yeah. We he's not here Sloopy. and I can throw him under the bus. Oh, I thought there he did go. log in for a bit there. Did he disappear again? No, I'm here. Oh, he is here. Okay. Oh. I'm just not saying much. <clears throat> oh. You don't sound, sound very well, so... Yeah. Stay quiet, Sloopy. Don't stress yourself. Stay okay, quiet. Okay, well, Sloop, Sloopy I, uh, can't talk right now, so it's easy to throw him under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why I have the rundown feeling? That might have been the car Ken was driving. I'm not sure. I thought run that's over. the run over, not run down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he may not fit under the bus to be swollen. Run over, run down. It all depends on which side of the steering wheel you're on. <laughs> yeah. No, I may. I found out uh, yesterday I'm not compatible with heat. Oh, okay. You wouldn't yeah. be good here. Yeah, the um, a few weeks ago, Mrs. Car broke down, and yesterday I went up to her parents' house to uh, work on it, and had to take the bike. And on the way back, there was construction, and I spent almost uh, forty minutes in a long line of vehicles waiting for them to let us through in, in 90 heat. degree heat. Well, this is yeah, probably no shade around either. No, and this well, is after I went through a monsoon. Well, you got some vitamin D then. Yeah. Don't you, can't you split lanes with that thing? Uh, no, they were repaving the road, reasphalting it. Oh, no, so you're going to get heat from that too, on top of it. Yeah, no, he's, so. he's he's got curb feelers on the side. He can't go through. Yeah. You just have to move up to Canada, Sloopy. We have all this white stuff called snow. You'll never have to experience that again. Yeah, I hear. <laughs> I hear, heard it got almost a 30 the other day. In some places. Are you talking Celsius? Or? Oh. Yes. <laughs> That's back up to 90 degrees again, so. Yeah, isn't that about 30 Celsius? Yeah, it's 80, 86 technically, but yeah, pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Thursday the night. Report. Go ahead, Ken. Thursday night, be there. It starts at, oh, currently 7 o'clock for me. Whatever time that is for you guys, I don't know. I'm not going to figure it out for you. 8 p.m. Eastern, right? 8 p.m. Eastern. Also, just so you know, you if you don't care much for the games we're playing, you can play any game on your Coco as the one person here playing Ghost Rush shows. <laughs> no, that, that, they're just playing Ghost Rush because they're lazy. They only want yeah, to use I, I one need, button. I, I needed a simple game. One <laughs> button is all I could handle. The layer was simple. <laughs> you just walk around and die. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's the best tip so far. <clears throat> just walk all around right, and die. So- and those were the games for this week. Shall I talk about what the games for next week are going to be? Obviously, 
We are playing. No, I'll leave it a mystery. Cuthbert <laughs> in space again. For one more week. And then we are also playing. I'm not even going to give a teaser for this. I'm just showing the uh, screen. Asteroids RX. So um, there is on it that I use the shield mode or the war mode. No, you're breaking I'm up, accepting... Okay. Okay, try again. Can I think it might have been just trying to highlight the, or get the picture downloaded because that's pretty high res. Okay, I'll turn the picture off and say there's two modes on um, Asteroids RX. There's the uh, shield mode and uh, warp mode. So you can either turn a shield on or you can trans warp yourself over to another part of the screen. Okay. Use either mode. Don't care. Okay, and there's no skill levels or anything to select? No. You die just as fast either way? there's, There's hard and there's hard and hard. And really hard. And this is for yeah. the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> that's what the <laughs> title ported. screen says, but that's what or, the image um, said. It, that's what the image says, but it was ported to the Coco. So we're it was originally made on the ZX Spectrum. Yeah, by Happy and, Coding uh, X uh, from the Amigos um, channel, and ported by Paris yeah. Rep from where is he from Spain? I think. Yeah, yeah he does all the AGD anyway. stuff. Yeah. And where can one get this game? How much does it cost? It's four ninety nine US, and there will be a link to get it to the itch.io page. It's actually a pretty cool be. game. I actually got it a couple of weeks ago and was actually playing it a few weeks ago on the game challenge. And it yes, looks and really cool. You're the one that originally suggested it, so thank you, Marco. Oh, yay! I haven't had a chance to try it yet. How does it compare with something like, say, Star Blaster? I haven't played Star Blaster, so but it, it reminds me of like uh, like the asteroids in the arcade. It, it yeah, this is physics. a very, very um, true to physics. Know, seem uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What I know. Happy Coding just released a new a new uh, Spectrum game. I don't know if Pear is planning on porting this one too, but it was uh, Lunar Rescue in the arcade. Sorry. Go ahead, Nick. What? What are the sound effects like on the on that game? Good question. I didn't turn on the, the asteroid. Well, I didn't turn the volume on to listen to it while mm. I was trying it out. So, Mark, do you remember? Is it close to the arcade too, or is it different? I yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the sound. It it didn't sound really weird to me, but I don't know how accurate it was. But it mm. it was it was I was pleasantly surprised what the sound did sound like. Well, the original, the original was pretty simple. So yeah, we should be yeah. Able to it was do just doo, doo, and then the the explosions were good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were a little fancy, uh, kind of but... crashing. Especially those big speakers right over your head. That was awesome. Right. But it was one <laughs> bit sound. We can do that. Yep. I'm sure the sound is fine. <laughs> There's no backtrack of music, if that's what you're asking, Nick. No, no, just wondering. Uh, it if plays it had... on a Coco One, so. <laughs> Heck, somebody else was back supporting it. asteroids to the Coco directly from the arcade uh, as a transcode at some point, but it, it kind of. Fellow, that was Mark McDougal, wasn't it? McDougal? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because he had a but demo the, of that uh, up at one point, but uh, he's kind of dropped it, I think. I wonder if I can find it. In fact, I think that was a Coco 3 version. He was actually going to use a 640 mode to give it as close to vector appearance as you could on yeah. a Coco. 
But yeah, I don't think I ever finished it. Anyways, this version of Asteroids looks pretty good, and uh, that's what <laughs> we're going to be playing for two weeks. I got a couple comments from the chat here. Um, Scott Cooper uh, says, I think the Coco Dragon version of Asteroids RX is missing things that the Spectrum version has, like spinning asteroids and a cluster of ships that break up and chase you. And then uh, Karen says, uh, talking about Asteroids in the arcade, he says, I mean, it had two tones of background music, didn't it? Yeah, it's kind of like the Jaws. do 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 <laughs> but I think that music only happened when the um, when the uh, flying saucer was on the screen. No, that had that high pitch thing. The the other one was that it started slow. It's like do do do, and as you destroyed more and more asteroids and started moving faster, it goes do 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 do. It gets faster. Yeah. Oh, okay. Fine. And then the uh, the the flying saucer do 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 as it flew around thing. Okay, I haven't yeah, played I the asteroids wondering. arcade cabinet for probably twenty years, so. So I was asking, wondering what the sound effects on that new right, Coco so, one is. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to find out this week. Yeah, Mark just posted up. the link in the chat, too, so if anybody wants the HIO address to go get it. On Thursday it night, Nick, you'll have to show up and listen to us playing it. He I'll can't, though. Mm-hmm. Thursday stuck. for him is like Rick. He's got a whole bunch of stuff pre-booked he can't get out of, so. <laughs> I, I you know, it gets kind of annoying as you start blasting the asteroids, they start fragmenting, and then you got multiple things you have to try to dodge, so. That's the game. Yep. That's precisely the arcade game. <laughs> Nick needs to just sample Curtis making sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> no, that wasn't a sound effect. That was gas. Sorry. Um. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> All right. Well, that's about that for the game on challenge. So cool. Uh, Mark, don't don't skip into the news uh, intro or anything. I'll just do the game um, news because there's only four. So okay, I will share that right now. Hey, you guys seen that? All right, so we covered this recently. Uh, <clears throat> Paul Thayer is making uh, a port from uh, the Pico of Shmup You Up. And um, now he's working on the sound routines, but he realized that the last video he posted, he actually had the sound shut off. <laughs> so <laughs> nobody heard his fancy sound routines. <clears throat> but that was okay, because he actually fixed up his sound routines to now do two-channel. And he's just learning how to do this. This is the first time he's ever done multi-channel sound, which I know Nick Nick does all the time, so... I actually gave him a couple of pointers. I Hopefully I relayed that correctly, Nick. I, I didn't involve you with it because it was an odd time of the day for you. Um, hopefully I didn't set him on the wrong path. But he's actually got well, some side-by-side here showing the single-channel sound and then the double-channel sound, basically two different builds of the program uh, that you'll be able to see here. So I'll just play the whole thing. It's kind of a vlog entry, and it's on Facebook, and I know quite a few of our viewers never touch Facebook with a 10-foot pole, so they'll never see this otherwise. So I'll just play the whole two and a half minutes. So I just realized that I, last recording that I did of this, I had my mic on mute the entire time. So I just wanted to make a little progress update. I'm starting to understand the sound a little better. I definitely don't have it fully grasped, and I'm getting some help from some friends, but I wanted to just try and figure some stuff out on my own. So... In the past, with some of my games, I just had a single uh, sample player. So you record your sample, 
front on your PC onto Audacity and reduce it to mono and th whatever frequency you're going to run your FRIQ at or whatever. And then it will play sound when you take the sample value and shove it into the DAC. Um, and I've been using the same one for many years that Simon Jonason wrote for me when I made Timberman. Uh, so in this game engine, I want to be able to mix sounds. Right now I got two. Um, it was a real pain in the butt to figure this stuff out. Um, but I'm getting there. So here's kind of the start of where it was. So one single sound. As you can see when it explodes, there's no explosion sound. I'm also getting some performance issues now that I've introduced sound. Did you hear that hesitation? That's the game slowing down 20 frames per second. All right, so here and here, now we have, we're going to hear multiple channels of sound. I think I need to shorten the length of the explosion sound. Not sure. We'll get this figured out, but I just wanted to make some show you guys some progress. I mean, I think it's come along good. Yeah? The the sound mixer seems to be working yeah. fairly well. You can still hear the shots at the same time you hear the explosion. The explosion is a bit long, but I mean, it, that, you know, unless he needs to save memory, it's fine the way it is, honestly. Because if you get a lot of explosions, road it keeps restarting the sound sample anyway. It's, it's only when you shoot one thing and then pause, you know, shooting for a bit that you're going to get the long explosion. For sound effects, you can get away with uh, without a sound chip fairly quite well, actually. It's only when you need music. You really do need a sound chip for that. To do it properly, to do it cleanly. Um, I think it depends on the game and how much CPU time you need. Like if you listen to something like Photon, that rivals any sound chip I've heard. Oh, Contras, well, which actually has you know percussion and stuff too. I mean, that would it depends. If if your if your game is really, really CPU intensive on its own, irregardless of sound, then yeah, you you definitely would want a sound chip to offload it. But I, I don't know. I think it sounds pretty darn good. And I, I'm sure yeah, you no, would agree. Well. Yeah, no, it's good. You can do um, some pretty good stuff with the uh, Coco's DAC. Yeah, and he's also one. He's like you. He picks a, a lower res. I can't remember this, which one this was here, but it's like a 128 by, I think, close to what you used for Gatecrasher. Yeah, uh, what is it? 128 by 112 by, and a half or whatever it was. 128 by 96 or whatever, yeah. Yeah, which means you're not moving that much graphics around. You're basically moving the size of a Coco 2 screen or something like that, but you're running at Coco 3 double speed. That gives you enough time to do some pretty decent sound samples and mix multiple channels. Mm. I have to tell him, though, he's got to make an Orc 90 version where you can actually have it pan the sound left and right as you're moving across the screen. That'd be awesome. I keep trying to get Nick to do that, too, but he's too lazy. I, I just don't think people are all set up with two speakers there. You know, how many people have a 
uh, two stereo speakers hooked up to an orchestra 90 right now. Apart right here, from the one we right are. literally beside me. <laughs> yeah, well, you're one. I'm not going to do that just for one person. Uh, you're muted, Rick. I was going to say, I will if I plug all this crap in, but not right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the other thing is, of course, you need a multi-pack of some sort, and that's something not everybody has. Yeah, either, that's so. the other thing, too, yeah. I do have one ready to go. But this is a chicken the egg thing. If you don't give the people the option of finding some software that uses this to a great extent, then why would they bother buying it, right? True. I mean, unless you're playing mod files, because I mean, Sockmaster does have his uh, 639 player does support the Orc 90 and does full stereo on the four voice mod files. But that's all it does. It's not a game, obviously. Other than that, game-wise, I think only John Strong has the two. He has his Tetris clone and his uh, Gems games are the only ones that actually do panning stereo. And they're very simple, like just beep boop sound effects, nothing, nothing fancy. There was someday a Gunstar that did. Yeah, I actually have that one. I should release that unofficially or something. <laughs> actually, for anybody here who has purchased Gunstar, has a multi pack of some sort, whether it's a mini, a mega mini, or a, a Tandy one or whatever, and has an Orc ninety, uh, email Nick and uh, ask for that if you've already purchased it. Because I, I would like to get some people to try that and see what they think, honestly. To make see you know, see if it's worthwhile pursuing in a future game from somebody. All right, good work, Paul. Looking forward to the game. Next up, Richard Kelly has released Maze Creator version one. So this is the first official release. He's been doing a bunch of betas recently, and he kept speeding it up and fixing bugs, etc. This one now includes uh, versions for the Coco 3, the Coco 1 and 2. There's versions that do it in text, versions that do it with the graphic screens. Uh, we'll now run in 16K, um, and it'll kind of auto-solve. And he's got a few samples here, like here's a Coco 1 and 2 one, uh, with you know, a little bit of help menu on the bottom. Now, whatever emulators he's using for screenshots, I know the old version of MAME does this. It, it keeps stretching Coco 3 modes to be twice as wide as they're supposed to be, so it kind of flattens it vertically. I, and that's what it's doing down here as well. So uh, it doesn't actually look like that on a real screen. It'll be at the normal ratio like this one. But yeah, that's a Coco 3 with a bit of the fancier colors and stuff involved in it. But because it's all in basic, I mean, if you guys want to make a game that just involves, you know, you want to figure out how to draw a maze yourself and have it randomized or, and solvable, that's the other thing it does, is to uh, you just use his routine in there and you can probably expand on that to, um, you know, you can make it a 3D game, you know, drawing... Uh, like some of the RPGs did back in the day, or a race car game, or whatever you want to do. Anyway, that's available on Facebook, and I think he said it's going to be on the archive, and it probably will be shortly if it isn't already. I didn't get a chance to check today. Next up, we have Jim Gary, who has ported a game called Sleuth, uh, which is basically uh, similar to Clue, if you're if you're familiar with that uh, board game. Originally by Paul Farquhar. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, my apologies if I'm not. It's from Compute Mag or Compute's Gazette magazine from the July 1985 issue. And the version that Jim has ported here is based on the that's kind of loud. Um is based on the uh, Vic 20 version from that magazine. I do like the footprints. It reminds me of Carmen San Diego. But basically, as you can see from the text screen here, and I'll just kind of explain it a little bit for the audio listeners here. It gives you, like, you know, somebody got shot and died, Lord of the Manor, and it lists, like, who was there present at the time. And then you have to do the standard, you know, grill the suspects, make an accusation if you think you have enough clues to identify who the killer is. 
and you wander between rooms and you try to figure out things from talking to people. Um, it even mentions that one of the suspects is a compulsive liar, so you have to take that into consideration when you're trying to figure things out. But uh, yeah, it looks like a pretty good port. Um, I think it needs a 16k RAM expansion pack. I don't think it runs on less than like on the 4k machine, though I could be wrong. Uh, I don't think he specified. No, he just says it's for the MC10. So, anyway, there's another game for the MC10 from Jim Gary, and Jim Gary's got a non-game uh, one we'll be covering in the regular news as well. And next up, and the last one of the uh, game-related ones, uh, Tim and AJ are back. Uh, sibling Rivalry, Episode 91, with a Coco game called Space Shuttle. And no, it's not the Tom Mix one that probably more of us are familiar with. This is one I didn't even know existed until the last couple months doing my uh, research for 1982 Coco-released games. This is actually made by Aardvark. It's a dual, simultaneous player, basically a Lunar Lander-style game. Um it's keyboard operated. The only key each player has on either side of the keyboard is thrust on off. And basically you're trying to dock with a spaceship that's going across the top and you have to get to it centered underneath and not going too fast. So you hit it. And if you decide after trying a couple of times and you're running low on fuel, then you can soft land at the bottom to refuel yourself and then go back up and try again, which is pretty hard. I don't think Tim even managed to do it during the episode. He might've done it once, but uh, AJ nailed that part, but Tim did win on the, docking portion so for those of you not seen the game in action i'll just play a little bit here hopefully they don't get too uh sweary during this particular chunk i've picked <laughs> my apologies if they do we try to remain a kid-friendly show they certainly do not they just have a show mm -hmm. and it's written in basic so i mean it's a, it's a little bit slow and plus they put in i don't know if it shows up in the stream well but there's two volcanoes on either side on the bottom. They actually are firing off things that you can see in the background. They see these little particles flying off. So they're actually, you know, erupting at the time you're playing the game too, which is a nice little touch. Oh, you crashed. Oh, how did that happen? You didn't center hit it in the center. And just to keep the game speed up, they don't really have sound in it either. Okay, I got a little fuel left. I'm going to time it. Just perfectly. Come on. No, no. Anyway, you'll have to watch the show to see if she made it or not. And uh, it was cool coming back to that one. Um, I, I like the fact that it was a dual player. Like I've played, there's a bunch of Lunar Lander style or inverse Lunar Lander. Like this one is for the Coco. I've covered a bunch of them on my game site as I've been going through the history. That would seem to be really popular in the early days. There's at least half a dozen or more versions that came out just in 81 and 82 alone. Uh, but having two players simultaneously is not something I saw too often. Um, and there's another one I sent to Tim that hopefully he'll cover at some point in the future, because of course they're going through a bunch of different platforms, so I'm not expecting this anytime soon. But uh, there's a dual-player machine language game that's basically Space Invaders, and it's two players at once firing on the invaders, which is kind of a cool one. And I don't think I've ever seen another version like that on the Coco, so hopefully we'll look forward to that sometime in the future as well. And that's it for the Game On news, so... Uh, did you want to do a commercial break before we get into the main news, which is a bit longer than that? Sure. Hi, this is Rick Adams, author of Temple of Rom and Shanghai, and I, like you, am a citizen of the Coco Nation.
This is not the Joey serial switch. This is the Joey serial switch. Control up to three serial devices. Order yours today at cocoman.biz. The music is back. For many a year, peace has reigned throughout the realm. In the forest, nothing but ruins of an ancient fortress remain to fuel the myth of the evil wizard. Tales of your ancestors' quest are met with laughter. Mockery follows your warnings. But you know what awaits. So before I get into the actual news stuff here, I'll just uh, reshare a few announcements of some interviews we have coming up. So August 12th, we have Matt Harper, author of Wizard's Den, sold by Tom McSoftware. August the 19th, we have both Glenn Dahlgren and Doug Maston coming on to talk about The Conjurers. That was sold by Sundog Systems that Glenn ran. And Doug was the programmer behind it. And then September the 9th, we will have Mark P. and Charlie from portcoco.com. If you remember from the fest here, we had the portable cocos that can be run off batteries. But modifying the case, that's the people behind that. And that will be on September the 9th. So looking forward to those. And I'm still trying to book a few other ones too. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm not sure if they'll be over the summer, if they'll be into the fall. But we'll try our best. And Okay, you guys should see a bunch of random colors and circles. I hope. <laughs> Very circular. So, Tier City Retro Programming has been experimenting with trying to do scrolling in BASIC. Um, this is for Coco 1 and 2, BASIC, I should mention, too, not Coco 3. And uh, <clears throat> if you guys have fiddled with getput buffers, uh, as, as followed in the manual and the extended BASIC manual, it's quite slow on, on doing some of that stuff. So, trying to scroll a screen is pretty well an impossibility. 
Now, there are some tips and tricks for doing it, um, namely the hidden feature of doing even byte boundary get put buffers is much, much faster, like several times faster than the regular ones that uh, most people used at the time. And it's not documented in the manual. So um, there was some suggestions from both myself and uh, oh, that guy's name, Jim, something's his real name. He has a really weird handle on, on YouTube that is like random letters or something. Uh, but he he gave a program for him to try. And this is, this is the result of it. Now, he had quite typed it in quite correctly here. So you're going to see a bit of glitching on the right as it's doing the scroll. But this is what he came up with. Which means it is scrolling the whole screen. And it's doing it without the tearing, as, as Ron was mentioning. Because it actually is using page flipping and p-copy to render it first and then and copy it over afterwards. Huh. But it is working. <clears throat> And that's a full screen P mode one, I think. So it's moving like, what is that, 3K at a time or something like that? Which for basic, that's not, you know, horrible. Um, it's a bit slow, though, because the way Jim had originally written it was he was actually doing it in 16 pixel wide chunks. So you have to do like vertical strips that you're moving back and forth uh, as you're copying on the opposite of the screen you can't see before it gets displayed. So I gave a suggestion of, of doing it with one honking big get put that's literally all of the screen except for 16 pixel strip move that in one shot so you don't have the overhead of doing a loop and variables and multiple calls to basic for get put buffers and just do one big one and then one little one for the strip type thing so on the second video that he did later this week is using that method and then he also used the speed up poke now this is something i want to ask kieran um and i know it's you know technically accurate to what the real hardware would have done but it's kind of annoying um He's now using XROR on his videos. I think he used VCC originally because um, he wants to say strictly Cocoa 1 and 2 at this point. But if you have the speed up poke enabled and he's trying to save his stuff to cassette, I'm not sure why he's saving to cassette. I actually asked him about that. Um, but it basically, it corrupts the image if the high speed poke's on and you can't reload it again. So he had typed in the program and the previous video I just finished showing and he lost it after he saved it because he hadn't remembered to slow the computer back down with the poke. And I was just wondering, is there a way to maybe fix that? Because I don't think any, I, back in the day, I definitely did not like it when I suddenly remembered I'd accidentally left the speed poke on, tried saving something on cassette and, you know, corrupted it. Later on, we found out there's some pokes you can do to actually, so you can load those back in again. You have to shorten the header and a few other things. Um, but I don't know if there's maybe a way in XWAR to just maybe have it so that it doesn't corrupt it automatically or if even if Karen's aware of that. So. Anyway, thought I'd mention that. Anyway, this is the uh, revised one that does it. And you can actually see on the screen your line 16 through 19. So we're getting the little strip and then uh, getting the entire rest of the screen into two different arrays, S and T, and then putting them at the new positions. And this is a wraparound scroll. And and one thing that uh, Terra City Retroprogramming did in this particular case, he actually drew some actual shapes rather than just random circles. So it's a little bit easier to see the effect. And this is with the double speed poke and just, you know, get put. There's no machine language. There's no nothing in here. And uh, it's a I'm fair bit edit better. Edit line one and actually edit line zero. I don't know why everybody's using zero all of a sudden. Let's renumber this. Um, let's not renumber it. Let's just take the speed poke out of rem and see how much faster it goes. And it's quite a bit faster. Now, now he's he's not just scrolling that little chunk with the different shapes. You're seeing the whole screen is scrolling. There's just there's nothing drawn on the rest of it, so but it's a full screen a scroll. Program. Um, we all got together to create, and um, 
But that's that's actually not bad. I mean, if you start using P copy and stuff, so you're drawing shapes, they draw the background first, you know, scrolling like this, and then you draw some shapes over top of it or lines for lasers or whatever. You can actually do a semi-decent scrolling game in basic, I think, honestly. And this is something I never really thought of trying back in the day. Because by the time I figured out how the fast get put uh, buffers worked, I was getting into OS nine. So, <laughs> but uh, that's not too shabby for for basic, you know, for built in stuff. I was wondering if anybody here who's done basic programming back in the day or still does have has any of you experimented with this, this kind of thing using the the fast get put buffers? No, I didn't do anything with the fast uh, get and put so much, but I did use page flipping for some animation. Yep, yep. You commit your animation to a single uh, a single uh, page, you can go pretty quick. Yeah, that was one advantage the Coco had. Like the Coco, it's kind of funny. The sound, you know, having to use stuff you blast to a DAC, and the graphics, um, you know, having no sprite chip or whatever, was actually a bit of ahead of its time. We just didn't have the CPU horsepower required to fully use that because that's how the modern machines do. They don't have sprite chips anymore. They don't have. Well, I guess they can have sound chips, but everything's done with samples now, not, you know, pre-done synthesizer chips, because you can do whatever music you want or sound effects. There's no limits. Whereas, you know, if you were using a sound chip, you were limited to whatever that sound chip supported. And uh, same with sprites. I mean, sprites on, you know, the C64 and the Ataris, you had specific sizes you were allowed to use. You couldn't go outside of that. They had limitations how many colors could be in a sprite, usually two or four, depending. So there's all these limitations. And uh, the way the Coco did it, the brute force method uh, actually didn't have those limitations. It, the limitation was how fast can the CPU do it through software? And uh, it's kind of funny because uh, the way it's done now is more like it, the Coco. What's um, what's the goal? What's he trying to do? What what, what sort of a game? Well, he just wanted to see if he could do scrolling in basic fast right. enough to even attempt something. Like I, he was thinking about using a tail suburban. Actually, uh, Jim and me both suggested like he's using a P mode one, so that's two pages, and you've got eight pages by default. There's actually a couple of pokes you could do if you're in 64K mode and actually get more than that if you need them. But he's got basically three screens, and he's flipped screens when he gets to the other one, and he's pre-drawn those screens so he can P copy them onto the main one to animate the character over. Well, the thing is, if you're doing that already and you've already pre-drawn them, you could actually have those screens connect to each other and then start pulling like the right part of the screen from the first one, the left part from the second one, and copy that over onto the viewable one. So you can actually scroll three screens wide. So it's not just wraparound like this little demo is doing. You could actually do a full screen scroll at three screens wide in basic at semi-decent speeds. So I think he wants to maybe fiddle with that a little bit. And that's kind of the, I think what he was doing. So you just want to see if it was feasible, first of all. Because I suggested, I said, I can send you an ML or subroutine. You can poke in and then exec it or whatever. And he says, no, I want to see if I can do it in pure basic. And honestly, I didn't think it would be fast enough either. So I thought oh, that's that's uh, kind of pie in the sky. But actually, it's that's not bad. If you're just doing something where you're walking and maybe you have other stuff flying around the screen, you probably could do something semi decent this way. Well, and by the time and you make a by the time you make a viewport with you know a dialog box under it and some instruments, this could make a pretty active screen in basic. Yeah. Well, his go ahead. Nick? It depends also on the game as well. He may yeah. not need to do a full screen. Well, that's what exactly. he's getting at. Because uh, Tales of Suburbia, what he does is he's got a top half of the screen, which is going to be your, your status and stuff, plus the title. Um, yeah. And then the bottom part is the actual gameplay part. It's literally right on a page boundary. So it's only one page per. And he actually mentions that in the video here. He said, you know, nice. this is scrolling the whole screen two pages at a time. 
if you cut it down to his tail suburban, you only do the bottom part, which would basically double the speed of it from what it's doing now. Uh, then you actually he could have it so you're scrolling through, you know, from the house to the street to the the fence and the graveyard and whatever else instead of having the split screen as he's got now. Because he has sure. them all pre-rendered already, one page each, three pages total, mm-hmm. two pages for the actual display. And I think he has another extra page for some of the shapes that he does, like you know, the swords and actually that's another game he's doing too. But uh, basically, yeah, you could make a a fully scrolling, and that's just using the legal P Clear 8. I mean. If you have 64K and you kick in RAM mode, you can actually assign more pages than that, especially at lower reses like this. So, yeah, I think you could do some pretty decent stuff. And I, I'm always a bit surprised around this quick myself. <laughs> Even though I wrote it for him, I was like, oh, this is actually not that bad. Yeah. And I'm scrolling <laughs> the whole screen, not just the half screen he normally does. So, yeah. Yeah, extended basic, I think I, I, most Coco people know that it's a really good basic. And in fact, what G was basic on the PC was based on. And it was probably the most advanced of the 8-bit extended basics that Microsoft did. Um, but I think it's underrated amongst other platforms. A lot of them poo-poo and go, oh, there's no sprites. There's no you know multi-voice sound chip or whatever type thing. Which, I mean, obviously this won't solve the multi-voice sound thing. But uh, well, you can do some basic. pretty decent yeah, exactly. I mean, you list a program on the C64, it's poke, 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 poke <laughs> you know, type thing. The only poke in here was just to kick in the double speed CPU. And I mean, even without that, it doesn't run too bad. I mean, it's slower than this, obviously, but it's still, actually, I think he actually did run it with uh, without the high speed poke. Find that. Isn't this awesome? Yeah, this is without the high-speed poke. And it's still not too bad for scrolling a whole screen. Curtis, whatever you did, man, you sped this thing up like a... So, I mean, the basic uh, 65495 poke speeds up ROM access, not RAM. So all the actual copying of stuff to RAM here isn't going to be that much faster. And interpreting the basic program you typed in is not going to be faster, but the ROM routines being called will run faster. So you get about a 30 40% speed increase, I think it is. Um. But yeah, still not bad. The only limiting thing here, I think, is the fact that because of how P-Copy works, you have to put it on a full page boundary, which is one and a half K. You're limited as to what you can do. You can do a whole screen or you can do a half top half or bottom half. If you're in P-Mode 3 and you want to pull in some extra stuff to scroll, you know, from the extra four pages that are maybe two pages high, then you can do like a middle or, you know, top two or bottom two or something like that. A little bit more variety, but... Uh, you know that you're a bit limited there. You can't just pick a you know a, a scan line to start scrolling and scan line to end, which you could do with an ML subroutine. So I'm wondering. I know Basic uses some internal variables. I think in Direct Page that actually tell where the screen starts and ends, or at least starts and the size of it. I wonder if a couple pokes in there just to change Basic so it's fooled into thinking it's in a different boundary. You might be able to fully control that without doing any ML subroutines. I might have to fiddle with that. Ah, uh, yeah. Like the the fake high res trick on machines that don't have it, where you restart the character generator to start of every line and you get yeah. much more than you really have. Hmm. But I mean, basic itself because it had to adjust where does the screen start in memory from cassette to disc, so it has to keep track of that, right? Because it's shifted from six hundred to E zero zero. So uh, so it already that. has something that tells it you know it starts here in this circumstance, starts here in this circumstance. So if you poke it right after that. I want P mode one comma one point two five, you know, page one and a quarter type thing. I, I think want, that I, might work. 
are the images he's going between? Are they like a meant to be a contiguous uh, uh, scene? Like you've got a scroll. Well, this was a wraparound scene he just did to make it easier to see what it was doing. Because originally, uh, when Jim did the original version of it, it was actually doing uh, just random circles all over the screen. It was so messy, it was kind of hard to tell what was going on at times. So he wanted something nice and clean to see. And this was just meant to be a wraparound. But you could do the two or three pages of this trick and have it so it's a longer scape that you're scrolling through. Right. So this is the worst case. This is the full screen going blip. And wraparound. Yeah. 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 But not bad. I, I, I'm I'm kind of curious. Like I know H buff, uh, the H buffers on uh, H get and H put on the Kogel three are even byte boundary by force. You're not even allowed to do the odd ones, so they already are running a bit faster, optimized. Now you're moving a heck of a lot more screen around. But I've never really tried to see if that would work. Could you have a little scrolling area that would, you know, say you wanted a guy running, but you wanted the ground to scroll underneath it to give the impression of running? Could you you get a chunk that's most of the screen shifted over to the left? And then you know, put a little chunk on the right at the bottom, or whatever, wherever you want to place it, so that it, you know, gives the illusion scroll. Now, unfortunately, you can't do double buffering on Coca Three Super Extended Basic, so you might catch it on the scan where you're seeing it draw a little bit. But it would, for the most part, I think it wouldn't be too bad. That's where you know, if you're running it under Nitrous Nine, it's a lot better because you can double, triple, quadruple, quintuple buffer if you want to. So, you know, lots of opportunities to do there. I was I was glad that I that I uh, did some code that helps him speed up the routine from the original version, which was already pretty decent and uh, actually surprised me. <laughs> so that was good. Next up, Coco Town has uh, done multiple videos, and most of it's about the VDG chip, which is actually we were just covering with Brian and Alan that the Tandy uh, uh, diagnostic disks there actually have some programs to test this out too. So the first one he did here was covering the differences found between the T1 VDG and the regular T chip. Now, we kind of already saw that when Brian um, was demoing it there for the Coco 3 because it emulates the T1 VDG for those modes. So I won't bother playing any of this one, but go check it out. He actually goes through you know what, what uh, bits you can control, um, going through all the various modes, etc. The fact that you can actually do semi-graphics, higher semi-graphics with those uh, bits on a Coco 2B that you cannot do in the Coco 3. So you can do semi-graphics 12 or 24 with lowercase and a full border or whatever, or inverse video turning on and off, which you can instantly flip You know the, the characters from green on black to black on green if you're doing text, which can make some pretty cool effects. It's almost like having a, a single palette register, or two, I guess, one for the background, one for the foreground for actual text characters, and you can actually flip the entire screen. Now, if you're doing semi-graphics 24, for example... And you're, you know, cutting up scan lines between different characters to draw figures like uh, Nick did a couple years back for that adventure game that uh, what's his name was doing and Protectors 2 does, you know, from Synapse Software back in 83. Um, you can definitely use that technique to instantly change the colors of those text or those little characters to invert them, like, say, we want to register or something got hit or something uh, without actually having to uh, redraw them. You can just change those couple bit settings and, you know, instantly change the character. And the next one here, um, he kind of does another follow-up here, and this he goes through the different bit settings and the VDG pin differences between the two VDG chips, um, which I'm sure a lot of you hardware guys are probably way more familiar with than I am. I do know that some of the pins moved around, and then some have been kind of rewired and do a different function. There's a couple that went missing on the original or different on the new one. And uh, so I'll just play the tail end of this little video here just to show some of the comparison there but you can check out the full video on his site 
Now they do. Different things here make different things here. And there you have it. That's where all of the bits and bytes came from, from the code from the last video. Uh, I hope you found this interesting. And as always, I'm not a hardware person. I probably said false statements. Uh, you're more than welcome to correct any of my mistakes in the comments. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time. But you can see when he's hitting a key, because this program has a key to change the color set, um, and also another one to change the uh, lowercase versus inverse video type thing. And you can see it instantly changes the screen, because it's an attribute for the whole screen. Um, so you can do some effects there, almost like a palette register. And in the higher semigraphic modes, you can actually do some really interesting things. Unfortunately, the higher graphics, that, semigraphics modes do not work in the Code 3. But uh, That screen is showing, that's uh, only on the T1. T1. It won't Correct. work on, on the original one, will it? No. No. Well, the color will. No. I mean, that, mind you, the colors are a bit yeah, but different. but you can't too, get the border. Right. Or the lowercase. Or the lowercase, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the SG4 version of this is duplicated on the Coco 3, but the SG8, 12, 24 is not, unfortunately. Mm. Minus the trick for the graphics blocks. I mean, the, those two combined makes a very good VDG primer for the T1 VDG and how it works versus the regular VDG. Now this one here, he did another video, which he's using that same program, but he kind of goes into the uh background of how he's doing some of the key handling and stuff and he, he works on cycle counts and stuff just to see like he's making a bunch of little subroutines that basically just set flags and you have you have to do a jsr or a bsr which does a store at some memory address and then doesn't rts and he actually goes and exploring like what's the overhead of doing that versus the original embedding it in type thing um and he also goes into some of his uh, keyboard handling routines. He calls Polcat, the official ROM routine, but then he's manipulating, you know, based on that, you know, is it the same key you hit last time and that type of thing. So he goes into a bit of that. I won't play the video there. Uh, you guys can just go catch it on his, his site there. But there's some pretty cool stuff in there. And uh, like some of the other, you know, tutorials like Tier City Retro Programming is doing, you know, he's kind of learning as he goes type thing. Um and he's, he's, he's advanced pretty fast, pretty quick here. And, of course, he was our guest uh, not too long ago either. So definitely go check it out. He's been keeping a lot of cool stuff. If you're just learning assembly language, actually, it's probably a good series to watch. I know we've had a few others by Steve Bjork and some others. Uh, Stevie was covering some. We had uh, George Jansen did some as well. Um, this is kind of like the current version of that, uh, except he's starting right with the graphics and the sound stuff first. Um, which I think a lot more people are interested in uh, rather than getting, you know, just the basic fundamentals. It's like doing a textbook type thing. Like here he's going for the stuff that does the wow factor. Or if you want to write games, which is what most people want to learn the same language for, you know, you have to learn how to do graphics and stuff here. So this is perfect how to read the keyboard for, you know, playing an arcade game and stuff. So he's, he's going in the right order, I think, to hopefully entice a few more people to watch it. Okay, next up we have Marco van de... Mullenhoff, hopefully I didn't butcher that too badly, but he's got new Tandy Coco 2 batches in limited stock on the Retro 8-bit shop, which is in Europe. I think it might even be in the UK. I can't remember if it's in the UK or mainland Europe, but uh, you can see them here, and they actually look pretty close to the original Tandy ones, and these are meant to, you know, if yours is damaged or peeled off or wrecked or whatever, or missing, you can get replacements for it. And uh, yeah, It looks all right. So a little bit of a glossy and it's the, style. Uh, it's and it's got bubbled. The bubble. it's got the, yeah. Yeah. 
Now, 875 euro, that's what, about nine, 10 bucks US, I'm guessing? Yes. Yeah. And he's only got a Coco 2 one so far. Nope, he's got a few here. Oh, here's the range. Oh, yeah. So model. color computer, 64K color computer 2, color computer 2, the model 3, in case you want to get one replacement for one of those, color computer 2 and 120K color computer 3. And Radio Shack and Tandy. Yeah, well, Tandy never made a 512K badge, ever. No, no. So he needs a 512 and he needs a 2 meg nowadays. <laughs> and 8. Because wow, he's been yeah, selling those yeah. in the second batch of GameXs he sent out a, two years ago were all 8 megs. Right after I got rid of my 8 meg and gave it to Jim Brain is when uh, Ed brought out new 8 megs. So <laughs> I've only got the old 2 meg one. Well, by then you just go with Gimme X Color Computer 3, right? You could, yeah. On the yeah. badge. Explains it all. Yeah, I, I honestly, maybe Mark can explain this. I don't understand. Like Tandy sold 512K upgrades. So they had their memory test diagnostic test 512K. Not yeah. correctly, apparently, but um, why would they not have made a 512K badge? I do not understand. But consider about two-thirds of the 512K upgrades I've ever seen are AXX numbers, which are not official part numbers. They're sort of that weird side hustle that Tandy has going on. So um, <laughs> why would they label the case with 512K if the part wasn't even officially available except it was officially available. They advertised it in the catalog right as well, soon yeah, as the code was announced. But the, but the one you got wasn't a regular Tandy part number. It was AXX some weird number. Well, the AXX and, yeah, is what uh, we ordered from uh, National Parts. Okay. But I guess that's my point is it wasn't really ever fully integrated until the very end. I have a couple that really just have a regular Tandy part number on a 512K upgrade from Tandy. But only a couple. Compared to all well, these, since, since it only was ever able to be uh, installed by a tech, I don't think they ever sold them in the stores. So they didn't have an actual twenty-six dash catalog number. I don't think. Could be wrong on that. I haven't looked. I think, I, think I have like one, but but all, like I say, all of them are AXX. There are a couple of different AXX numbers, but they look exactly the same. Anyway, that's enough uh, grand trivia for me. Thanks. Yeah. I just figured they should have had the, the replacement label. They had the little replacement badges for the Coco 1 when it went from 4K to 16 to 32 to 64. Um, the, the entire badge here, like these ones here, I don't know if you got a 16K Coco 2, if you got an upgrade to 64K, if they swapped the badge, but I think they did. If it was done through Tandy, obviously, if you were doing it on your own, you wouldn't bother. Now, Mark is saying in the chat, he said it was just an upgrade. I, I don't know. It's not, it's not a just an upgrade. That's a necessary one if you're running OS 9. <laughs> well, but, okay, so there never was a 512K Coco. It was always an upgrade, however you bought Well, they never it. sold the right. 512K Coco. Yeah, you can go and ask for it, but then they would get a 128 and then just put the upgrade, upgrade in. And here an you upgrade, go. Yeah. yeah, they did sell them. I mean, I, I'm, a couple of people around here I know bought 512s. They didn't buy 128s, but it still said 128 no, no, on the no. thing. No, they bought there a 128 was. plus an upgrade. Not as far as you're options. concerned. Yeah, it's dealer <laughs> options. Just like Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> there was there was a uh, Color Computer 4 badge made. Yeah, but that was just for prototyping, I think, or for yeah. you know just seeing what it would look like type thing. But, but it was made. Uh, so, so that makes sense. In the one. chat, uh, Mark is saying that merchandising didn't want to compete with the 1000s because the 1000s were a 512 
yeah uh, k machine so oh. you didn't want to have another 512k machine that cost that a quarter cheaper. of that yeah. yeah that was cheaper and and ran a better os <laughs> right right look better <laughs> hey, hey badge man if you make them make a four yeah check. but how much did a coco cost once you bought a 128k coco plus 512 plus a floppy drive uh, but Nick, we, we talked about this in private before. If people were upgrading from an existing Coke One Two, you usually already had floppy drives and stuff like that. You weren't rebuying it all. You weren't buying another multi pack yeah, yeah. for Coco Three. That was right. the reason it was cheap for us because it was an upgrade with a lot more power, and we didn't have to rebuy all the peripherals. We got to keep our joysticks. We got to keep our ROM carts. We got to keep our disc drives, our you know Koala mm-hmm. tablets and joysticks and everything but else. A new, was all, a new guy and, and, coming in. Well, they would probably would have bought a Tandy One Thousand and went over yeah, and bought an Amiga. Point, yeah. But, the point was to keep all of the Coco users, and they did that with the Coco 3 because, like Curtis says. Yeah, it was 219 bucks for the Coco 3 128K, and that was, you know, I got to use all my previous existing peripherals. Everything still worked. Yeah. Printers, modems, joysticks, mice, disk drives, hard drives, multi-packs, Orc 90 cards, sound speech packs, all that stuff still worked. I didn't have to rebuy any of that. The only thing I did end up buying extra was the 512K and the... Uh, CM8 eventually once I discovered how much better it looked. And then I probably sold that off and got a Magnavox because that was way better than the Tandy one. And not having a competing 512K machine save questions being asked. Right. Yeah. Especially it's if they saw it's not and they're going, well, can I multitask and run multiple windows on Deskmate on the Tandy 1000? Um, nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah, because in the stores, the um, 1000 was the back preferred. Then people didn't know about that. Right. Some did. But yeah, depending on what you're used to. Like somebody who'd seen an Amiga before would know about multitasking and windowing. Right. But back then, we're talking like in 87, what was DOS Windows 1.0, which didn't have multitasking at all, didn't have overlapping windows. The Mac? Uh, the Mac by that time had MultiFinder already. So it, it was cooperative multitasking. So it wasn't quite as good as those nines. But yeah, it, it, it would at least let you kind of try it. Something. Yeah. Yeah. If the programs were nice. <laughs> Hey, before I get on the next part here, there's a few comments in the chat I just want to kind of go through here quickly. Um, yeah, Fred Provencia says, programming basic in the C64 was such a chore. It was so primitive. Totally agree. You could do some amazing stuff once you learn the poke stuff. Like You could poke in your sprite data and control the sprites, et cetera. Like you could do some pretty cool stuff, but it wasn't in basic per se. Um, there are quite a few basics out for the 64 now that that that, that do now, yeah, better. Did but that's that? not what you but got with the machine. It's an add-on. Yeah. It's an add-on. Right. Yeah, whereas we had a pretty decent basic right off the word go. Ours was standard. Ours was yeah. built in. Everyone had that. Yeah. The the other really really good basic for that time period, I think, was the BBC Micros, which was kind of almost like a basic 09. Like it was a structured basic, which was way ahead of its time, yeah, and much yeah. faster. That was a good one. I will definitely Ooh. give it props. And it was a non-Microsoft one. Yeah. Uh, Sixty mentions IDP clear zero that way. Poke the boundaries around, then please clear one, then poke them back. So that's a way to get your extra, you know, page of graphics memory back to your basic program if you don't need graphics at all. Um, and then he says, yeah, the T1 didn't have the bright orange. That's the difference. The uh, the two color sets on the Coco um, original VDG and the VGD T1, aside from all the lowercase and border stuff, the yellow orange or dark red orange mode 
On the T1, the orange is the same as CLS8 orange. On the cocoa or the T, the non-T1 BTG, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's not the case. It actually has a new yellowish orange that's quite different, and then the dark red background. So you actually had added an extra color on the original BTG that the T1 lost because it ended up just duplicating the orange. So you yeah. could have 11 unique colors on the original VDG, but only 10 on the um, T1. T1. Yeah. I remember I hit that too because a friend of mine had a Coco uh, 2, and I was going, that looks quite a bit different looking at you know, a red background for, like, say, the skiing tech screen. Do you guys um, remember Desk View? Or yeah, it was called Desk View. Yeah. Where you could the PC? Test. Well, they said that you could have Windows up you know more more than one windows it was what in dos based right yeah but that was yeah. cooperative still was it or i yeah. believe so yeah there were but a i think ton it was of... multitasking yeah yeah there was a, there was more than just uh yes there's a few brands that did that but well, yeah. i used it it was Guess, fun <laughs> guest view is a quarter deck product as i recall i think i bought yep. that back in the day and yep. it, you used with their memory manager but i believe it was preemptive on the 386 yeah, it was qemm plus desk view yep. or whatever yep QMM, yeah, it sounds right. Yeah, so yeah, it was actually kind of cool. Yeah, it uh, actually, I guess it was an X Windows type of system with a client server type of. Uh, hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other comments. Um, uh, Chris Durr says we would keep a 512k upgrade in stock at the store that we got from National Parts, but we were a plus computer center, so we might have been allowed to. And there was a bit of a difference with some of the different levels of Radio Shack stores. And Slippy Malibus says, all those upgrades so you could play Neutroid. Oh, that's totally wrong. Hey, there's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> it does fit on all those, even the Model 3. Cool. <laughs> yeah, actually, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still trying to get it right 30 years later. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, better, better. <laughs> Actually, uh, I, I've seen and heard some of the stuff Nick's been doing on the new one, and actually, it's a lot better, and it's it's not as obtuse on the Cocoa version. Yeah, hopefully, <laughs> we'll find it when the sales happen. Um, <laughs> if yeah, so Michael Furman does uh, an update uh, vlog. He's been doing his Flex series, and Alan Murphy, you probably know a fair bit about this too, because I know you've been talking to him about it a fair bit in the Discord. I've seen. Um, assuming Alan's still on the call. Um, but he discovered uh, that he does have the master disc because he's been talking the last couple of vlogs that the uh, Frank Hogg original disc here appeared to have been some you know butcher copy that you can't actually make a new system disc because it's a special format. You have to format the first track as single density. The rest has to be double density. And then there was some special install program for making duplicates that he couldn't find. And he's got an hour plus long video here going through how he figured out that actually, no, it is on there. It's hidden. Um, and there's, you, know, you have to do some special things to figure out where it is and how to run it type thing, which he did figure out. And some of this was mentioned in the manual. He just kind of, you know, kind of missed it the first time around. But he actually goes into a deep dive explaining exactly how it works. And it's basically having hidden files on track 34 that don't normally show up in a directory on the flex disk. It's kind of like um, a schizoid. Style well, it's a little worse than that because what it, what they did was they split the put loader file. One block of it is in the file system, but mangled. And then four more or five more blocks of it are hidden in track 35. 
the 35th track on the disc, track zero to 34. It'd be in 34. Yeah. Um, so when you run it the right way, it goes through and changes all these little file system link pointers to get to the the parts that are hidden but are not written in the directory entry. And yeah, it's a great video. He does go through, explains piece by piece how he followed the trail kind of down to the wrong path and then followed it again and figured out what the, the parts that didn't make sense before what they really meant when you looked at the source code and then how to put it all back together correctly. So, yeah. Yeah, because you had to disassemble the loader and stuff here to figure out exactly what the heck it was doing. And it, it, it like this sounds like it's copy protection, basically, is what it was without having to make the disk totally inaccessible. Right. Yeah. Minus the single there, density there part. Because the most thing I saw that looked like a technical reason they would do it that way, other than to obfuscate the ability to do you know the the full backups. Yeah. Because at one point in the video, he when he actually tried to run it properly, he really didn't expect it to work. And he actually said ahead of you know, this is probably not going to work, or he might have been even more sure than that. He might have just said it wasn't going to work and then it did, and he's oh. <laughs> Well, I guess the copy protection uh, did good until Mikey came along. Right? <laughs> oh, it's like any copy protection. I mean, if it's it's been written, it can be broken. Well, the main thing that was going wrong is that the backup copies that didn't have the right put loader only had one of the six sectors of the put loader. That's why it magically broke. Yeah. And so everything else was fine. But when you tried to run the put loader, it would put five sectors of trash, whatever happened to have been in sector 35 or, or the track 35 of the floppy, it would put that as the rest of put loader rather than the real sectors. So yeah, yeah. very cool video. And yeah, he's, he's worked all the way out and through and, and does, uh, does his best to try to explain how that path works. Yeah, you'll definitely need a bit of a technical background to understand it, but if you're into that kind of detail, it's it's a fascinating video explaining exactly what they did and how they did it. Uh, in fact, with all the different shenanigans of floppy stuff there with hidden files and single versus double density and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure David Ladd would love this if he hasn't watched it already. Is David still in the call? We're hoping to get a reaction out of him on that one. I must have had to drop off. Darn, I waited too long. He's there. He's there. He's just asleep. <laughs> Oh, I might be tending with his brother too. Who knows? <clears throat> anyway, it's, it's it's a really fascinating one. If you want to get some deep dive details on Flex and the uh, floppy controller and some of the stuff you can do with it itself and hiding files and directory structures, good video. Next up, Retro Relics, which is a, uh, a YouTube page I've not seen before. <clears throat> and this is from the UK. Uh, did a 20-minute video about a 16K extended PAL TR City color computer restoration he's doing. Um, so I'll mention off the bat here, this is more about restoring the case from scratches and stuff because it's it's old and getting scratched up. But you can see a dust cover on it didn't really help too much. Um, but he also does stuff like he adds the composite audio video out uh, to it as well to improve the quality of the, the picture from the original RF can. Uh, he also replaces the TR City label with the one actually we just showed earlier from uh, Marco at that uh, Retro 8-bit. Uh, that's where he got it. And he's got a replacement on here as well. And he also 3D prints a replacement Black Beauty 
uh, joystick button and a replacement joystick stem. And the latter one he actually had to make. So he had one of the ones where you could screw on the plastic and uh, he couldn't find any existing files for that. So he made his own. So if you guys need to replace that on your original Black Beauty joystick, you can now get the file and he shows you where to get that. But basically he ends up painting it a silvery gray um, to get rid of the blemishes and stuff. And actually it doesn't look too bad. It's not quite correct to what the original was, but it's it's not bad. Let me just uh, fast forward here. You can kind of just see what it looks like. Here's where he's just about to put the band. But you can see it's a bit shinier than normal. In other words, he didn't go to Mercedes and get their gray? Right. No. You need the metallic Mercedes gray from the 80s. It looks really nice. Yeah. But this doesn't look bad. It's not horrible. No, that's not bad. It's just not I metallic, see. so it looks wrong. Yeah. <laughs> For us, it's all used to it, yeah. It's but, uh, an actual I, I, gray, not a silver. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it's not not bad. But the dino table is period correct. Do they still make those? Of course, we painted the. This is one of the models that had the little plastic stick-ons that told you what the ports were, rather than the embossed one like the original Coca ones did. So you had to make replacement. Uh, hey, that looks like my Black Beauty. Right. Yeah, so Thingiverse has apparently the joystick button, the 3D print for that's already there. If you guys had replaced the button, wow, I didn't know that was there actually. So this one he had to design himself to get it working. And it's, of course, a different color. He's got a red one now. <laughs> like the IEC power input. Oh, yeah. It doesn't look too bad, actually. No, and it's, it reminded me of the CP400 ones where they have the different colored joysticks right. left and right. And you can do that now in the Coco with that. And it matches the fire button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, it does. I never even thought of that. <laughs> and he goes and tests a couple games just to make sure it's working. And to pick pick some 16k games. Uh, so he played like Danger Ranger and Cuthbert goes digging and Penguin, which is a Penguin clone I've not seen before. I'll have to I'll have to get some reviews on that. Uh, Dino Wars. Oh, I should mention I got in contact with Robert Kilgus, the author of Dino Wars, because I know uh, Rick Adams and a few others pronounce it Dino Wars. You know, after Dino on the Flintstones, and I asked. Robert, I said, what is the official pronunciation? Because I don't know which one's right. Dino. Dino is, is exactly it. Yeah, that's what he said. He said Tandy never had an official one, but him and his wife, and his wife, of course, is the voice of the dinosaurs, manipulated somewhat. And uh, no, it's been Dino Wars since it was its first inception. Anyway, that's Dino a pretty, pretty cool video. So... Yeah. Yeah. Dino's, yeah, it's a name. Yeah, though I could see it. I mean, Flintstones was popular in the 60s, and it was, you know, on at lunchtime basically in the 70s and 80s when the cocoa was coming out and i can i can see why some people would have just went with dino but yeah it's, it's definitely dino there's a picture of a father and son playing dino wars on uh, uh show yeah i saw that I, I didn't put it in the news per se but i did see that yeah having fun with the game there and that is a game young kids love i mean i know a lot of adults kind of poo-pooed the game including rick and a few others um i i like the fact it's scaled like your dinosaur in real time now, that was pretty cool um but I, I never did mind the game i mean it freezes up playing the sound samples because of course they didn't have a programmable interrupt timer and they probably hadn't learned the uh h-sync trick that nick and a few others use but uh <laughs> i always liked the game it's not as good as skiing i'll be first to admit that but now sloopy are you still on the call Is that a resounding no, or is he just away from his mic? Away from his mic. 
Okay. Because Slippy was actually in the chat here. I didn't catch this until the day after, unfortunately. But uh, Justin Morgan, who's actually uh, does uh, his own podcast, and he's generally more of an Apple guy, I think. Um, but he picked up a Coco 2 at VCF East. And um, so he did some upgrades on it. He put the composite mod, the one that basically duplicates the Mark Data Products one. And he actually got it as a bundle. So he got the Coco 2 64K Extended Basic with a speech sound pack. And he typed in the little program sample to get it to speak. And he was having fun with this. He was, he, you know, it's not the greatest sounding voice in the world. But he was literally typing in senses and he hadn't you know, read the manual. And he had to figure out you have to do it phonetically. You have to spell certain things. So he's getting odd results and stuff. But he was having a blast. Like he, so he got the couple senses and he hadn't you know, read the manual. And he had to figure out certain things. So he's getting odd oh, results. Am I hearing something in the background or is that me? Me. Sorry. Can you mute it? Yep. There you go. Thanks. Ah, I can't pronounce its own uh, name. It can. He just spelled it phonetically wrong. uh, (laughs) Anyway, unfortunately, he doesn't have any joysticks. So at the end of the show, I think Mike Furman was actually in on this one as well. um, And Sleepy were both in the chat at the time. Um, But, I mean, Mikey's not a game player, so he doesn't know a a lot about games. And and Sleepy, of course, is more new to the Coco. So he doesn't know a lot of the games, like which ones were on on keyboard. And when I was watching it afterwards, I was going, I can name you like three dozen right off the top of my head. You're going to try, but um, hopefully I'll be able to catch him because he is planning on doing another Coco stream at some point in the future. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to catch it live this time. And if he needs any help, suggestions for games and stuff, I definitely will help him out in that. But it's cool to see somebody else kind of discovering the Coco, you know, for the first time because he said, you know, none of his friends had this. He knew it existed, but they never really tried it type thing. And you know, and had never played with speech sound pack. He hasn't even touched the sound part of it yet. He's only been doing the speech part. Doesn't have a multi pack, so unfortunately, I couldn't suggest like play Pitfall too if you want to really sound it's you know what it sounds like. Because um, basically, you just have to type in the basic programs. But uh, it was a four hour live stream of doing all this. This guy said he didn't like the green screen at all. Yeah, yeah. Even though we found out it's it's uh, medically soothing, so I'll have to yeah. correct him on that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but like i said it's it's fun watching people new to the coco completely discovering it discovering some of its you know it's, it's not perfect yeah. it's got its quirks but uh also discovering there's some pretty cool things on it that you wouldn't have thought of back in the day next up this is uh one that got announced uh late yesterday so pierre sarazen has announced uh cmoc version 0.1.83 has just been released um this includes adding an error message for multiply defined global variables and functions rather than just a warning. Uh, fixed a build problem under OpenBSD. The is space function now returns non-zero for backslash F and backslash V. Some of the Cocoa 3 graphic functions no longer require a previous call to init Cocoa support. And there's a list of them here on the screen. I won't read them all out here, but basically it's this entire chunk there. <clears throat> And reset palette uh, no longer requires the basic ROMs to be present. Um, so that is actually a fair bit of extra support for the Cocoa 3 in specific on CMOC, which is cool. I, I haven't actually played with it to see how much Cocoa 3 supports in there now, but if he's handling palettes and eight screens and uh, locate commands and stuff like that, then obviously he's getting further and further into it. So has anybody had a chance to play with the new one? 
I probably not because it just got released yesterday. But <laughs> Alan, I know well, you you'd mentioned that you'd read about it a bit. Yeah, I got it and built it and uh, ran through the tests and you know got it all installed and stuff. But I haven't been able to build much yet. Do you know what CMOX stands for? If I it's did, a... I might not be able to tell you. Yeah, mockery of C. <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna mention the chat here. Two eight bits in the basement said Curtis sent me lists of and lists and lists of keyboard games when I first got my Coco. Yeah, and he only had 16k, so I had to restrict that list down. Uh, Whereas Justin actually has a 64K Coco, so he can pretty well play anything that it keyboard controls. He's also got a Coco SDC. I should mention that too. Um, anyway, if you guys have been using CMOC, I mean, CMOC is a C-like compiler and it's getting closer and closer to actual C all the time. And now it's getting more and more graphic functionality and sound functionality for the Cocos. It's getting extra Coco 3 support. Uh, it supports both running under Disk Basic and OS 9. So you can create programs for both operating systems on the Coco, which is cool as well. It's uh, it's been and it's constantly getting updated. I mean, it's constantly getting additions and bug fixes and all kinds of things. So it's uh, it's robust. You you will if you report a bug, it will get fixed. So I would highly recommend if you can see programming. All of the Cocoa network routines are written in CMOC. So yeah, most of the demos Brendan does for the Cocoa VJ are written in CMOC as well. I mean, some are basic, but the hardcore ones are more written in CMOC. There's even some uh, OS9 games I've got on the current Nitrous 9 EOU that are written in CMOC. So. And Pierre does listen to our show because I'd made a comment about when it compiled that had all the uh, uh, debug info in it. And he fixed that like last release. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and yet so, Nick Morentes does not use this to make his wonderful programs. Huh? No, he's assembly, man. C's too Why? slow for Nick. He writes CMOC. <laughs> he doesn't use it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you were, I want to really get hair in your chest, then you got to use assembly. <clears throat> It hasn't worked for me yet. I still have no hair in my chest, no. but I, I have been using assembly. I got the hair, I still can't write assembly. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does it in binary. Yeah, he hand codes it in with you know flipping switches on bits. Actually, um, CMOC doesn't actually generate code. It generates LWASM assembler. So you could generate assembler and then go hand patch it. Well, I think most C compilers do that. They generate the assembly code and then they run it through an assembler. Yeah. I mean, even the C compiler in OS 9 does that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most of all of them yeah. did. Uh, it wasn't until, like, before, the, by, by the time the IBM PC came out where they started going direct. Turbo C from Borland was one that, you know... Went yeah, because it would make the uh, compiling a lot faster, but you need a fair bit of RAM to do that, which is why right. you, know, you had to wait for a PC with a mega RAM or whatever. Right. Uh, fact, and, I remember when the, the hot cocoa hack was to replace a SIM in the Tandy C package with RMA. So you could do super duper drivers and stuff. You couldn't <laughs> yep. do with a SIM. <laughs> and then you, then you start sneaking in R63, which is the 6309 version of it. And then you could throw in 6309 code too. I mentioned Fred Provence has a question here. Have they fixed CMOC for Windows yet? Because I for, keep forgetting this is actually a cross uh, compiler as well. You don't have to run it natively on the Coke. Well, you, you can. I, I don't know. Does anybody know if uh, I didn't even know there were some issues with the uh, Windows version of CMOC? I think Tormod had a Windows version, uh, but I, I don't use it actually because I always use it under Linux. Okay. I don't even know what the bug is that he's talking about. So 
or maybe just crashes. Well, I, have no idea. I mean, right there on the screen at the very top first paragraph, it runs under GNU Linux, other Unix like Darwin and Sigwin. There is no mention of. So there's Sigwin issues. Right? Sigwin's under Windows, though. Sigwin's right. Windows. That's the issue, I guess. Sigwin. Um, one thing you could do is it go for Windows subsystem for Linux and just run Linux and then put the Linux version in that. Because yep. from WSL, you can access the rest of the Windows file system. And if you're the same user and, and vice versa, and vice right. versa, you can just compile the, using the Linux version directly. Right. There you go, Fred. If you understood any of that, then you're, you're ready to go. <laughs> That's a cool trick. My, my my new favorite command for Windows is bash. Hey, Fred, I just moved over to Windows 10 finally, and uh, I'm getting really familiar with WSL too. So if you want some assistance with me uh, getting that set up so you can uh, compile under you know Ubuntu or Debian or something and then pull it over to your Windows 10, get a hold of me. Cool. There you go, Fred. And I also uh, would like to give a shout out to Pierre himself, the author. Because he's got mentions here of our show. Uh, he mentions on November 19th, 2022 episode of Cocoa Talk features an eight month discussion of this page. And then February 25th, 2023 of the Cocoa Nation, which is what we're called now, features a five minute discussion that starts with the B graph uh, library to draw graphics. So thanks. Thanks for the shout out, Pierre. Okay, back to the MC10. Actually, before I get into this one, um, Alan, you'd mentioned in the pre-show that there's another announcement that just happened this morning that I didn't get a chance to catch up on. Do you want to kind of explain yeah, uh, what that um, is? So there is a retro basic cross environment called, it, you see it typed out as UG basic. It's short for micro game basic. And uh, the, the programmer, Spotless Mind, has just posted at noon today version 1.14.1 of both Micro Game Basic and the IDE for it uh, have been released on their site. And they have a link there. And it's microgamebasic.iwashere.eu. And it says this version collects all of the bug fixes and the corrections that have emerged in past months. And among the most important new features was added preliminary support for inline assembly and system calls. So uh, if you've looked at Microgame Basic at all before, um, both of those things I know were requests. And then uh, so that there's some initial support. I'm sure Spotless Mind is looking for some help testing that. Um, and uh, they're extremely responsive to bug fix requests and tickets that are put in through the Git system that they use. So, um, yeah, give Microgame Basic a try. Um, it, it tries to compile the basic code using stuff that's specific to take specific advantage of each of the retro platforms that it supports. So it's not like it's trying to make a one size fits all least common denominator basic. Instead, like one, one comment I made was, Oh yeah, you know, the, the cocoa cursor works differently. And like a day or two later, they had implemented the cocoa cursor specifically on the cocoa side of things. 
So it's trying to give you some really good basic control over the specifics of each of the platforms that are supported. So that that I thought was kind of cool. So yeah, new versions out. Uh, grab it, give it a shot. And uh, is it? It's a compiled basic, is it? I believe so, because right. what it's doing is it's building out um, different output targets assembled for each of the target machines. So like on the Cocoa, it, it will dump out a Cocoa disk, but on something else, it might dump out a cartridge image. Yeah, looking at this diagram, like I hopefully you guys are seeing this. I hope you did the switch share properly here, but I, I got on the UG Basic site here. And one of the things they have on the page here is what is UG Basic? UG Basic is a isomorphic and open source language fully documented and designed to develop portable programs without sacrificing efficiency. With a single source, it is therefore possible to create games for numerous 8-bit platforms. And the little diagram here as you're like running on a modern machine programmed up bass, run it through the compiler, and it creates a native executable. And they you know show some sample machines here, including the C64, the Spectrum, the Atari 400, 1200, etc. Don't show the Cocoa in this particular one here, but uh, that's now in there as well. But since it's saying native executable, I'm assuming it's actually compiling it right down to assembly. And packaging. Yeah, packaging it for the oh, disk yeah. formats, yeah. So the fact it's it says it's for games, does it add extra functionality? Like yes, in the basic. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not Microsoft Basic based. No, it, this is <clears throat> things like build screens and and movable objects and things like that. Right. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, they have well, some samples here showing you know Space Invaders games on the Atari four hundred, the C sixty four. Here's a fast animation sample video on uh, a Thompson MO6. That's a 6 to 9 system, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it is. All right, let's see what that looks like then. Well, it probably gives a bit of an idea speed-wise. That's not bad. Not doing too much yet, but... ColecoVision target... Um... Here's we see the people optimizer for the 6809 in action on an Olivetti Prodest PC128. I don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. Better read that, guys. I don't know if that's. But Olivetti made, uh, made printers. Yeah, that's what I'm familiar with them with. I didn't had no idea they made a computer, especially a 6809 one. Native multitasking, it says it has. I like it already. <laughs> <laughs> now we're cooking with Is gas. Is there anywhere a list of all the commands you have available to you? Yeah, I was just trying to see here. Um, It'd be good to see what they actually do. Like a add. manual. Yeah. Right. User manual. Examples. Keyword. Uh -huh. Shoot, I just saw keyword list. It's a keywords list as well, yeah. Whether that's got... Bank and comp okay, so they've compressed uh, data. It looks like bitmap mm -hmm. clear, enable, disable. Brown. That must be a Commodore sixty four command there, because that's basically their color <laughs> image. <laughs> Canadian screen. That must have the proper spellings of words. Sea <laughs> <so. laughs> line. Uh, C move collision. So that must be sprite collision detection. I'm imagining color sprite. The sixty four. So if you don't have sprites, it must emulate them. 
Yeah, that'd be my guess. Wow, that's what I'm wondering. Does it actually also add sprites on machines that don't have sprites or hardware sprites? I would say yes from the looks of it, but uh, oh, scroll up. Is it I've checked? never tried it. Do, are the check marks significant or sprites? Oh, checked? yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does so the does check mean, mark mean? Does that mean if it has a check, we all get it? And if it doesn't, some of us don't? That would be. No, uh, this keyword has been tested in an example file because they do have some examples. All right, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we all potentially have these things. <laughs> potentially. And this is a cross compiler. So, I mean, it can use as much memory trying to figure out all this stuff that it needs. You don't have to try to cram it into an 8 bit right. space for the compiler to run. So, is there a command called sprite or something? Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of them. Was there? Yeah, and the S's Where? you have do sprite, sprite this and sprite, do sprite command that. itself, sprite yeah, add, sprite color, sprite compress, sprite data from. So I'm wondering, uh, is that supported on the Coco? Boundaries? That would be really That'd cool be if it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll it'll work for the 64 or some of those others, but ah, you're right, it's but... not. Ah, there you go. Uh, it's not it's... supported on the Atari either. Why not? Yeah, because they have hardware sprites. Yeah. No, they have player missile graphics. Uh, yeah, hey. hardware sprites under a different name, basically. All documentation is 100% accurate all the time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try to find something else here. So, certainly, I'm imagining they would do everything. support for this was Circle just should be, added yeah. recently. Dragon 3254. Yeah, like here, I looked at the circle command, for example, here, and it's supporting the Coco and the Dragons. So we really need one of these with all the stuff checked off for the different systems where... Yeah. Okay, Coco has this, and, but only Commodore 64. Yeah, Alan, that. do you know if they have a breakdown by, like that to show what's available? Yeah, that makes Because yeah. right. I'd be interested, like, <clears throat> are they just more supporting basically the same thing that extended basic supported, but with optimized routines? Or have they started yeah, actually implementing it a lot of looks stuff? Yeah, like that's... it's tapping into the basic to get routines yeah, I sure hope from not, basic. That would be, yeah. that'd be like well, the, that the compilers be... we already have that aren't that much better. The, than... the really cool thing is, is that there's a whole channel for Microgame Basic on the Discord, and <laughs> the developer is active in the channel and reading it. So um, <laughs> this would be a great place to post all those questions. And that's where discoverability on Discord sucks. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but, now that, but now that you've told us, we know. <laughs> That's because we are too darn many channels. Um, oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry, Mark. Um, let's see what play does. I wasn't offended. <laughs> yeah, let's see what play does. <laughs> yeah, that for everything the, and uh, everything Coco's the not place. even there. <sighs> nope, yeah, that com there comment either. was for the uh, complaint about too many channels channel. Yeah. <laughs> So, in other words, it's, they're trying to support a sound chip, and of course, the Coco is out. The horizontal scroll, on the other hand, is on the Dragon and the Coco. So they do have some nice things in there that are not standard. Horizontal basic. scroll. I wonder. Right. I wonder how. What sort of a scroll? Well, it says the scroll is yeah, always in the direction know. from right to left. So, with the displacement of zero, the screen is exactly as it would be without scrolling. While the value seven will scroll at seven pixels to the left. So it's a pixel seven. accurate scroll. In one direction pixels. only. Pixels. Okay. Hopefully it's optimized for byte boundaries there too, because pixel scrolls mm. can be a lot slower. All right. So there's your platformer yeah. game scroll right there. 
But it means he does have some, you know, graphics commands that are on the Coco that are beyond extended basic, which is good. He's at least he's going in the yeah. right direction. Nice. But if there's no sprite support at this point, that's that's not really a great game language for the Coco at this point. Not what yet. is there? It's working. A, um, it's on its way. Is there a um? Let's try the tiles. Copy. Maybe that. Uh, yeah. See what tiles. Yep, tiles are on the Coco in the dragon. Okay, I, I take that back. It actually does have some stuff Look in, up in the games. Put. Well, that's Maybe his get that's put gone. buffers, I guess. Right? Get image. Get image. On the Coco. Well, that's on the Coco. Get an image. Yeah, you get to name specific... it. You name the buffer, uh, like airplane in this example, and from 10, 10. Yeah. Now, how yeah, does it know yeah. the size is a question. Yeah, I'm just wondering. Hmm. I guess we got to see some uh, examples, really, that use it. Uh, he did have some, I thought I saw somewhere here. Support. On the Coco. But... There we go. Okay. Oh, that's just the video examples. I was hoping for source. Yeah, I think that's all the stuff you saw before. Anyway, it definitely looks interesting. The fact that it's cross-platform, it's kind of like the Inifido type thing where you can write the code once and then maybe minor tweaks or no tweaks at all. Have it running on like a dozen or two dozen different platforms. And it looks what like, as, as Alan mentioned, he's constantly updating it. He's been fixing bugs as they've been presented to him. Um, he's already got tile support in for the Cocoa and the Dragons, it looks like, which is already beyond, well, regular basic. Uh, is capable of screen scrolling and stuff like that, too. So uh, hopefully we'll get to the point of having the software sprites uh, at some point, because it looks like the sprite commands are not enabled on the Cocos yet. But, you know, it's what's a work that, in progress, so that's expected, right? What does the word isomorphic mean? One of you math wizards or something's going to tell Basically, me. what it means is that it's not trying to be the lowest common denominator. That's what I was trying to skip over earlier, is that it's right. trying to take specific advantage of the specific capabilities of the targets. Oh, okay, so right. it would know that a C64 has a hardware sprite chip that's capable of doing sprites of these sizes with four colors at once type thing. Right. And use the hardware to its advantage. So on the Coco 3, you should be able to do scrolling uh, you know, in any direction based on the gimme being able to do it. Once he gets to that point. Wow. It depends because he says Chiro Sadi Color. So he might be using the old Coco 1 and 2 as a reference, not the 3. Yeah, but he could add that in later, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, later. It's like I'm sure the Vic 20 and the C64 are quite a bit different too, even though they're both 6510 or 6502 base machines. Yeah, I, mean, I might have to. Well, like I need more projects, but one of you has to download and try this and show us it live in a demo i think so erico has been working with this and has been working on some game ideas using it and is also active in the ug basic channel okay has he actually got some demos that he's shown you guys or uh yeah he's had some a little while back it's been a little quiet recently because i think some of the new capabilities that come out he's getting set up to test those Okay. I would like to actually see, like, if somebody actually has some time to sit down with it and, and give it a try, like Erico, to come on the show for maybe for like a half hour demo and just kind of show what it's capable of so far, what direction it's going. Um, you know, maybe run the same code on a couple different emulators for different machines to kind of show how it handles you know, a, a, a ColecoVision versus a Coco or something like that, just to see what the differences are. I'd, I'd like to see that. And I, I just don't have the time to 
to actually pursue that myself, unfortunately. But if he's making it targeted to the assembly compiler level on every single platform with its own strengths for each platform, I think that would be a pretty darn good thing to give it a shot and see how you know, fast it runs. Cool. Okay, I'll switch back and switch the share here again. Okay, so you guys should be seeing a, a nice green screen that says RAM end of an arc tangent routine at the end. Hopefully sharing the right window. <laughs> yep, I'm feeling relaxed. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's all green. Uh, everything's calm and soothing now. Okay, so this is uh, Jim Gary Port of a program called Skyscape. And Ron DelVoe will like this one if he's still on the call. It's originally by Mar Robert M. Simons from Compute Magazine, the November 1985 issue. Um, the original version of this in Compute was actually for the ti 9948 That's the one that uh, Jim converted from. And it's basically an astronomy program that displays a sky map of the planet, sun, moon, and Halley's Comet, based on the date and latitude that you give it. I know there's a version, uh, a astronomy program that's kind of a high-res version of this. It's available under EOU as a, a free giveaway. Um, but this is kind of a text low-res version of it. So let me just, I'll demonstrate a little bit of it. So you enter the year, day, month here to, to get the date and then the latitude. And then you can verify it. And it gives you some, you know, text-based information on where you would find things in the sky the various planets etc but then it actually does kind of a low-res graphics representation here kind of showing you in the plane on the horizon where it would show up in the sky relative to where you are at depending what time of the day, night it is etc so if you're into so, astronomy but you have a cool little program to uh, run on your mc10 planet engine is the one for the coco three right thank you yes i couldn't remember the name of it off the top of my head that's it so, Ron, are you going to try the – you got MC-10s. Are you going to try this with the Delvo uh, yeah, Observatory? I, um, did this just come out? He, he just did this because there, there yes. is one in the catalog of stuff. It's that, very cool. It does different – maybe it does different things, but I, I remember playing with it a little bit. Yeah, he just brought it out yesterday, literally. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, There's the guy. There's the guy. Anyway, Ron, if you want to report back to us, give that a try and maybe give us a review of it. Yeah. Be it Before the end of the show, please. Did you really <laughs> find the planet there when you looked? Uh, Nick, where we are, it's not dark outside. You can't oh, really okay. do this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and there's actually a fair bit of Dragon News this week. So the first one here, Julian Brown who's been doing the Dragon 32 duplicate motherboard. Well, Kieran's been doing the Dragon 64. He says, while I'm on a roll, I've roughed out the PCB layout for the Mark II Dragon 32 board using Stuart Orchard's schematics. Now, Stuart Orchard obviously been a guest on our show a couple of times, once with the Big Dragon special, and then again, going through some of the games he wrote uh, back in the 80s himself. And even some ones he's done more recently, like Return of the Beast, which is one of the best um four-way scrolling shooters I've seen on a Cobra 1 or 2 or Dragon 3264, to be honest. Great sound effects, etc. 
So basically, I, I'm not sure uh, what exactly the differences are between the original Dragon 32 motherboard and the Mark II, but now he's got versions of this uh, for both of these up that you can actually take a look and download. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go grab them. Uh, the link to it is actually on the Dragon 32 uh, owners group site on Facebook. And there's also a direct link here to a GitHub. Uh, next up, John Whitworth of Dragon Plus Electronics. Now, at the top of the screen, it says, uh, the store is currently close to illness because he's going through cancer treatment stuff. Now, he said it is actually kind of open right now. He's not making a ton of new stuff, but he has got some stuff back in stock as he can get to him. So there are six items that you can actually get, uh, at least as, as of when he wrote this uh, post on Facebook. Um, and he basically says he has slightly reduced range of items. Uh, how long will st it will stay open depends on you know how his treatment goes. Currently, it's going good. Hopefully, it keeps going that way. Uh, we're definitely rooting for him. So he mentions that the power supply unit replacement, the Ujima Flip 2020, the Super Sprite FM Plus, which works on the Cocos as well, the lowercase board, the pull-up board, and 63C09E and SAM chips are all available right now uh, that you can actually order on the store here. And you can see the prices here in, in pound, British pounds. Um, so if any of you need any of those kinds of things, or the Super Sprite FM Plus board, which, like I said, works on the Cocos as well. And, of course, 609 chips will work on the Cocos as well, too. So there's another alternative source for those. So uh, if you have a dragon or if you're in the UK and have dragons over there, then some of these parts are actually back in stock. I don't know how long this will last, but uh, now is your chance to go get them if you can. Curtis, did you ever uh, play around with a, a dragon? I, I've played around with them when they've been at Coco Fest and Rainbow Fest, but I've never owned one. And I didn't have anybody local here that actually owned one. So, so like, I've only what, seen them in Chicago. What's your opinion of them? I mean, just, you know, from what you know. They're they're a better Coco 2, honestly. Um, the keyboard's better, even than the, the late Coco 2 ones. Um, they're basic. It lets you use more of the RAM for basic programs, I think up to almost 40K on the 64. Um, their disk drive system, while not compatible with ours, was actually a better one, honestly. Um, they did screw up the V-Sync on the Dragon 64, as Nick well knows. That's a bit of a minus. Um, but it, it, it seemed to be a solidly built machine. It was actually one of the top five sellers in the UK for the second half of 1982. It competed well with the Spectrum and the C64, beating it several times, depending on what uh, particular week you picked on sales. So it was doing quite well. I mean, it was uh, it was a good machine. It just uh, the head company that owned it had some problems, and then they also did pulled an Osborne and announced something a little too early that uh, sales kind of dropped while there was still a ton of stuff in inventory. So they had inventory control problems. The company wasn't managed all that well, from what I understand. But the uh, I think the hardware is pretty good, and like I said, the keyboards it's the Mark Data Products keyboard basically. And you have one of those, I think, Ron. So you know yeah. how well that that works compared to the regular keyboards. Yeah. I quite liked them. I remember seeing them in Color Computer News and Rainbow when they were first announced to be coming the Tano version of it. And uh, there was a few people interested in it, but then didn't last too long, unfortunately. Do you think uh, Dragon is uh, one of the most famous um, clones or, you know, similar co as Coco 2 than like the CP400 uh, or whatever? Yes. yes. Yeah, by numbers, it's got to be. Yeah. Although the CP400 and the Brazilian ones could be direct clones with no repercussion. So I guess that they'd be even more compatible than the Dragon is. Although it's easy enough to, you know, target both. 
Well, except for a few odd differences, like the cartridge slot was different, so you couldn't put yeah. a cocoa cartridge unless you stripped it out of the shell, or put on an extender cable, like uh, yeah, uh, like oh, uh, uh, Ryan Weisler has. Right, but the, but but the dragon, I mean, from looking at the serial numbers, and as far as I know, theirs are accurate. Um, it, it sounds like between the thirty-two and the sixty-four, they probably sold about half a million all told. Right. Which you know, for selling just in the UK and, and Europe, basically, they sold you know a few thousands here in the North America. But it, basically, it sold pretty well. I mean, most of the sales was within a two-year span, too. So, whereas I understand Brazil was very much a walled garden, nothing came in and not really much went out. Right. So, um, from what I've read, basically they they put high import tariffs on electronics and technology, okay. and it basically encouraged companies to. Uh, buy stuff, then reverse engineer it, and then sell it. And then, of course, they protected those right. companies from uh, getting know, sued out of their else from getting sued. But then <laughs> exactly. they have a but then they have a Brazilian version of things that nobody else would want unless they couldn't get a cocoa. Mm. So it kind of it kind of stayed in Brazil, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. they were uh, all to themselves. You know, they had a direct clone of the Macintosh, the early Macintoshes, ROMs and all. Yep. Yeah. No, I think if they tried to sell too many of those computers outside of Brazil where copyright rules weren't as lax, they probably would have been sued right as soon as they crossed the border type thing. So black, black helicopters. That that was more of a Brazilian market unique to itself because of the, the laws they had regarding copyright and trademarks that were more copyright, I guess, or for you know, basically they could duplicate anything they wanted to hardware wise and not worry about consequences because the Brazilian government would protect them. Now um Russia didn't do anything. Sixty-eight oh nine did it. I'm sure they did. I just don't know if they did a Coke or a Dragon clone. They'd Bulgaria was the Bulgaria was the Silicon Valley of Russian stuff. Uh, the province was the Apple clone, and they had all versions of it. I don't know if they did the uh, mm-hmm. Apple II GS, but Apple II E, uh, the Apple IIs, Apple II Plus were all cloned, and they had other clones too, um, especially Z80 machines and even like uh, PDP computers were cloned i assume they'd have something like the cocoa but maybe not yeah i would be surprised if they didn't have a cocoa one or two style clone i don't think the three would have happened there but there's also the sample from i was at south korea i think did the sample which is another cocoa clone i remember seeing a picture for it and ad and bite but i've never seen one in person another one based on the motor reference design so yeah, there was multiple clones kicking around. It's a TPT, TPT or whatever it's called. Well, that was actually Radio Shack, just under that a different was, brand yeah. name. Okay, next up, we have uh, John Worth, uh again, this time talking about uh, he's finished replicating the JCB speech cartridge, which I'm assuming is basically kind of like an SSP for the, the Dragon market. He doesn't plan on manufacturing them, but he will upload to the GitHub once it is finalized the schematics for it. And he's got a bit of a mock-up here. You can see it in the circuit diagrams, et cetera. I'm not familiar with this one. If Kieran's still in the chat, he can maybe mention, is it using, a say, a better speech chip than the Coco? Tandy did. He might have been using the one like, was it, what was the one that sang? Super Voice? Well, it says right on there, it has an SPO256. Yeah, O256, which is the same as the Tandy speech one. So, oh, is that the same? Okay, I couldn't remember the chip number. So. I think that's the same one, isn't it? Okay. In other words... Yes, it um, is. That's the narrator. Yeah. In other words, it sounds like a Dalek. <laughs> oh, so Justin Morgan would have had a blast listening to that one too then. <laughs> <laughs> 
He was having fun with that. He was punching in everything, suggestions from the chat. Like, I think he was planning on demonstrating the speech for like two or three minutes. And he ended up going on for like 45 because he was having so much fun with it, which is good to see. It was recently pointed out to me that the sound speech pack sounds mm-hmm. a lot like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I'll so be if back. You just put in, you know, stuff. All of his that, catchphrases. <laughs> stuff that he said in various movies. You can judge for yourself whether that's true. You know, now that you mm-hmm. mentioned that, I never thought of it, but I, I think that would be right. I think that would actually work. I'll have to try that. I'll be back and give me your, clo- your, uh, your clothes. It, give not. them to me. <laughs> Which then it folds around to does prob- the person who did the movie copy the sound of early speech packs as Arnold? Uh, when did the Terminator voice? come out? Was that 81? 85. No, I know it was way before that. Mm. Terminator 2 is around 85, 82. wasn't it? it no, it was a bit later, wasn't it? No. Have you, have you guys seen uh, Schwarzenegger in, in all different kinds of new uh, situations, the younger him? Like uh, Sound of Music. They got his face on the on the the lady. Oh, you mean people using AI to Yeah. AI, which yeah. is why all of Hollywood's on strike right now. Nineteen eighty four. Eighty four. There you go. This is pretty funny. Now Mark Siegel's saying not a lot of choice back in eighty three. Now the speech sound pack, if I remember correctly, didn't show up until eighty four from Tandy, if I remember. There was a couple new ones out by then, but depending on how early the design work on it was. Design lead time. Yeah. Right. And Tandy would have a longer one than a lot of these third party companies would have. But I remember the, uh, I think it was Super Talker or Super Talker or something like that. They had the ads in uh, from Colorware that they would actually sing and had 4,086 pitches and it did much better speech. Still not quite as good as, say, the that one that the, the TN99 did, but. That was the Votrax 2. Yeah. yeah and these are Votrax 1s, basically, aren't they? Uh, well, no, the Votrax one was the the one like Real Talker and those kinds of things. Then there's the one that sings is the upgraded version of the Votrax one called the it's like the SPS 262 or something like that. But it's basically the Votrax two. The Model okay. One talked, didn't it? What's that? The Model One. Yeah, it had a third party add on to do that, or you could do the digitized speech like Speak Up uh, by Computize did on the Coco. Okay. It's totally in software. I think that was a Votrex, wasn't it? Or Votrex one. Yeah, the Votrex was the the one for the the Z80 versions of the Tandys. Like yeah. model one, yeah. two, or model one, three, and four. That yeah, that's, that's a Votrex big, one. Yeah, that's a big that big speech box or whatever they sold. Got a and comment from Tomic Eric. Tom Eric Gunderson, he lives in, in Europe and he says, I don't think the six and nine was cloned in Eastern Europe like the Z or Z80 was in East Germany. Uh, that's the reason for all the specky clones, because apparently they were cloning the, the CPU itself, never mind the motherboards. Uh, but the 6809 was not cloned as far as he knows. Interesting. I didn't know that. I wonder if they just couldn't get into it. <laughs> you know, Well, it's a more complex chip. I mean, there's a lot more. Right. It was a lot more expensive it, so. even here. So, Yeah, that yeah, was the one C80. thing that killed the 6809, actually, was it was so expensive compared to 6502 or 6800 or Z80. Z80, sorry. You know, it's funny that Apple went with uh, the chip that he did because um, it seems like the trend for Apple stuff is always expensive things. No, no, the trend for Apple is to get their stuff cheap and sell it for expensive. 
right. <laughs> they have huge markups. And so a 6502 was the perfect CPU for an Apple because it cost 30 bucks instead of 300. Oh, I'm sure they got well, came out in 77. Well, what about today? None of their stuff's cheap, is it? Wash, rinse, repeat. It's, it's more competitive than it used to be for the the level of I mean, CPU and GPUs they're giving in them now. They're like they're ranked fairly high, well, so you'd have to get. Go ahead. I was going to say, take that thirty dollars CPU and consider that the bare board costs six hundred and sixty six dollars, and uh, oh, it's the Apple One. That yep. day's Apple money. One, yeah. So um, yeah, the markup was always pretty good. Because <laughs> the reason they split off and created the 6502 from X engineers from Motorola, if I remember correctly, was because the 6800 was priced too high and they wanted to do a, mm -hmm. a bit of a dumbed down one to make it a lot cheaper. And Motorola said, nope. Right. Um, the field engineer was named Chuck Peddle and he worked for Motorola and he went out and demoed the 6800. And pretty much what that was got the feedback was, is, yeah, that's nice, but 200 bucks is too expensive. Could we get something for maybe one tenth of that? And he right. said, okay, and went back and told his bosses, yeah, it's a good idea, but nobody wants to buy it at this price. And so uh, when there was a falling out and they moved uh, from uh, Arizona to uh, Texas, I think, uh, the, that division, uh, basically Chuck and seven other engineers left and went to MOS Technologies in Pennsylvania. And then they built the 6501 and the 6502. Yep, and it became one of the best-selling CPUs ever. <laughs> because they priced it at the right price. Yeah. Right? Imagine and it got that. used by Ataris, it got used by Commodores, it got used yep. by Apples, it got used by and a ton of them. Well, that was the late up. 70s CPU to have. Right. All those computers were late 70s. Yeah. And the reason it was cheap is because it was easy to make. Yeah, there was a new process that MOS Tech had just bought all the process machines for that Motorola had not upgraded their process machines to yet. So the the the... One of the things that made the 6502 so cheap to make was that the new process, you got so many more working CPUs called the high yield wafer you yeah. could. Yeah, Whereas right. uh, you know, they were getting up into the 80 and 90% wafer mm -hmm. worked on. Yeah, it was, the was, if I remember the 6800 was like around 40, 50 or something, wasn't it? That was uh, even lower. 20 to 30 on. Oh, okay, yeah. yes. <laughs> so you're literally throwing away four out of every five because they don't work. Right. And don't forget, they cloned a CPU. They didn't design it right from the start. Motorola right. had to design the 6800. 6500 uh, Moss cloned it and made they, it 6501. Yeah, it's not totally a clone. I mean, the 6501 was designed to be pin compatible, and that one got uh, yeah. basically taken out because it was but, pin compatible. But I guess but, the point would be there might have been a little die stripping going on and Looking at what worked on Motorola's uh, design no, and what didn't. One of the one of the developers brought a bunch of Motorola documentation, even though Chuck <laughs> Metal had okay. told them not to, <laughs> and uh, that came up in court, which is why the sixty five hundred one went away, and the sixty five hundred two appeared was to to uh, satisfy the okay. You need to do it again, but without our docs this time, and mm -hmm. that was part of the court settlement for that. Cool. Mark okay. Siegel said that uh, Motorola said no because of all the military contracts. That kind of makes sense, but you can only sell so many to the military, whereas broad, well, nobody realized broad appeal was going to be a broad appeal. And, uh, you know, the mass market. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the timetable. 1600 oh, right. was a 1974 chip, wasn't it? Or was it even or earlier? 75. I think it was 75. Well, it might have been 6800 was 74. Right. And 6502 is 75. Yeah. 809 was like 1979, 78, 79. roughly. Yeah. Of course, the flip side is you don't have to sell very many to the military to 
make your yearly return. <laughs> so the thing too is you can also have different. The C64 wouldn't be possible without Motorola. Basically, Apple, the Atari, oh. and the Commodore are all directly responsible because of our, our, you know. Yeah, based on the 1600 originally. And yep. then. Yeah. Well, that kind of makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And that military contract thing is kind of important in the fact that CPUs or chips or electronics in general designed for the military have a lot more stringent requirements for certain things yep. that to comply with that and to be able to deliver the contract, you spend more to make it. So well, plus I think that's where that failure rate is because because they're like you said, they're very strict. It has to be able to handle like radiation and heat and certain mm-hmm. things above and beyond. Yeah, and most, uh, yeah. to make sure that everything on a wafer worked, I mean, you are going to get a 30, 40, or sorry, 60, 70% failure rate. 60, 70, 80. <laughs> Most most of your ICs wonder, come either commercial grade or they come in industrial grade, which has wider temperature ranges, or military grade, which have extreme temperature ranges and right. durability and maybe radiation. No. Yeah, yeah and Frank All Frank has mentioned that uh, at uh, Retro Rewind that the six zero nines he's getting are military source chips because of that. Oh wow, they're still made. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. I wonder also, if David did. Uh, saying uh, he also added on to that. He said the. Uh, Six, I'm assuming 6809. I'm not sure which one he's referring to, but he said it was used as a guidance computer for ICBMs. That's why they yeah. still make them today. Failure is really not an option. <laughs> no, you right? don't want that to fail. I mean, <laughs> right. until the impact, and then it's all over. Right. Then you can fail. But yeah. Yeah. Then. And then, and Mikey, uh, he mentions the Macintosh prototype had a 6.9 CPU. That's absolutely true. The first one that Jeff Raskin right. devised in 1981 was running a Motorola 6809, two megahertz. Uh, with a smaller graphics screen, if I remember correctly, but basically still black and white. And uh, they did a couple prototypes of it, and then they decided to bump it up to 68,000, which, of course, Motorola was releasing the same time the 6.9 was released. They but that was also more expensive. They discovered Puyan wouldn't look good on it. Right. <laughs> 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 black and white. Puyan looks like crap. <laughs> I don't know. The color set they picked on the Cocoa, it still looks like crap. But anyway. <laughs> Anyway, back to the news. <laughs> okay, so that Sorry. covers that That's sound co- chip. Let's see where we started that. Uh, this is a bit of an interesting one. So John Linney uh, reported that he's found some 8-inch discs, and I think John was one of the guys that worked at uh, Dragon 2, and he thinks they're likely for the Motorola Exercise or the Exoterm that has the source code for Microsoft's Dragon Extended Basic dated from May 26, 1983 on an 8-inch disk, and the exerciser used 8-inch disk. This was the cross-development system that Motorola, it was actually a hardware platform based on a 6800 that could assemble for the 6800 or the 6809. And in uh, fact, some of the original developers for the Coco before the Coco was released, and the 6809 was a, basically a brand new chip to Tandy, uh, they used these systems to actually create the first software for the initial launch titles for the Coco, because, of course, there's no assemblers, there's no nothing else available at that point. Um... I'm trying to remember. Do you remember, Alan, or anybody else has gone through the Dragon's uh, Microsoft Extended Basic source code that's been was posted? We covered the last couple of weeks. Uh, do you remember the dates of those? Because this sounds like it's a later version that might include some more of the Dragon changes that were done afterwards. Well, the the thing is, is that the source code that w- that's already been posted it says copyrights 82 but i believe it had 83 dates on it as well so this is along the same lines but there may be other 
parts of files and things on there that weren't in the final piece that got printed right. out because there were yeah. some missing pieces. Those missing pieces may be on these discs is kind of the idea. Now, why couldn't he have turned it sideways? <laughs> I, I want to introduce my theory. You can judge the date of unknown software by the quality of the handwritten text on it. The right. text is very nice. This person obviously learned to write in school. <laughs> if you see source code from the 2000s, handwritten labels don't look like this. <laughs> if you even have handwritten labels. Well, Mark Siegel says, yeah, we had two of them at Tandy, but Microsoft Basic was not on this machine. Yeah, that I can understand. Um, but they would have needed something to create the original carts. And like I said, I know Robert Kilgus and I think the image producers had both mentioned that they'd use these at some point uh, for the initial, you know, six launch titles for the Coco, the original cartridges. Okay, and then next one up. And the last one, this is another channel I've not seen before on YouTube called Bill Fixes Everything. He's <laughs> going to have a forever channel doing that. Um, but basically, this one here, he's got two Dragon 32s. One's fairly yellowed, one's fairly pristine, and he's fixing the power button on it. Um, and then he does some testing, playing some games and stuff on it. Uh, the switch itself is basically, it's just got a bunch of crud and dirt. So you had to basically clean the switch itself. It's not one of the ones you can easily take apart. But I thought I'd play a little bit uh, just because it's a brand new channel we haven't seen okay, before. So this time round, we've got... Oh, he's in the UK, I forgot to mention. Now, I'm not really familiar with these computers. Is that loud enough for you guys? Growing up... It's, it's a little low. Yeah. But uh, yeah. no one had yeah, one. Yeah, so it sounds a little low here. And it's a shame, really, because they are lovely little computers. It's basically a uh, Tandy Coco, a slightly modified software in it. So it's not 100% compatible, but... Damn is near, about 99.9%. A .9%, uh, little cartridge port on the side there. So I have this one, as you can see, it has a little bit of a suntan to it. And it's then like a dragon nice breed on as it. Well, which has a bit <laughs> of an issue, and this is the one we're going to be looking at more today. You can see, spec-wise, 6809 processor, 32 cab uh, RAM. We all know that basic, stuff, I can skip it a bit here. Keyboard, basic trading manual, nine-color display. Again, rather than look at a tear damn thing, I just kind of like to have a go myself and then just spray it in there. It's a fairly sealed switch, so you can't really take it apart and have a good go at it. So what I thought I'd do, I'd just spray some of this in there, just give it a couple of actions backwards and forwards, spray some more in there. And what this does, it will just kind of dissolve any crud or rubbish that's got in there over the years. And just, it's a uh, damn scary design, by the way. Contact again. So again, just give it a <laughs> Why do you say that? And then, uh, You're depending on all of these eight individual well, contacts. This is like an eight-pole double-throw switch so good to all work all the time. Every itself time. After about five, ten minutes, it just evaporates. You can see I'm using my professional... Uh, my professional... Now, that's his secret. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wonder I've never Dragon... seen one of those before. <laughs> no. yeah, and as you can see, lots of... Uh, well, I wonder if Dragon... Lots of dust and rubbish is built produced... up in here. Because the power supply is a separate... You know, in fact, the power supply, the uh, modulator, the stuff that would be region-specific is on a separate board. I wonder if they did that with plans of selling it into other regions. Well, they did. I mean, the Tano you know, obviously is getting sold to North America, and they have to change power supply there from two 
120 to 115 or whatever it is. Um, and uh, there, as far as the video stuff goes, I mean, uh, they were planning on selling it, you know, on CCAM for uh, France, et cetera, too. So I think there was plans for that. Mm-hmm. It is a slick design. It really is. And he puts it back together. No, I didn't show it earlier, and I won't show it here, but basically here you can turn it on and off, and it, it, it actually goes on and off when it's supposed to. When he originally plugged in this this second one here, if you just lightly rubbed your finger up against the power switch without actually pressing it, it would just shut the machine off and on constantly. Yippies. So uh, that's what he did, the spraying thing, and it worked. It actually totally solved the problem. So The, the Tano has a switch on the power supply for turning it on. What, what do you mean? There's a uh, on the brick, yeah. on the brick. Yeah, it says power supply and off and on, and there's no switch on the on the um, machine computer itself. itself. That was yeah. probably to get away from this horribly complex multi-multi-pole switch that's turning the power on, which might not bring all the power rails up together. Well, Especially if it gets a little dirty and you have to deoxid it to just get the thing to boot. <laughs> the switch on the power supply is crappy. Well, it's a bad design because there's a whole bunch of switches all connected to one button that have to all work together. Yeah. And as they get dirty, maybe they don't all quite work in the right order all at once. And things crash for no reason. It was a new channel, and uh, I had not seen before. And he said this is the first dragons he's really done anything with. And but he remembers hearing about them when he was young. I just didn't know anybody around him that had one. Um, so I, you know, if, if you want to check it out, uh, I definitely it's worth uh, giving him a few, uh, you know, watches and stuff there to get his numbers up a bit there for covering the dragons. So, and that's it for the news for this week. Pick up, everyone. Yeah. So, Curtis? Oh. oh, sorry, Mark. Did we wake you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cat keeps biting me, so I'm lost more blood today than anything else. Oh, jeez. Take your iron pills. Too, too frisky of a cat today. Yeah, the switch on the back of my Tano is a uh, channel three, channel four switch. And the one he was playing with is the on and off switch. I mean, they've used a similar kind of switch on all the Cocos. Yeah. Not really, though. If you look at at the Dragon switch, it has a whole bunch of contacts. Yeah, a lot more of them. And the Coco only has a few. The whole power supply always comes up at once because you're turning it on all at once. I don't understand all of the things going on. It looks like an old walkie-talkie where they switched between transmitter and receiver by changing all the circuitry around with the push-to-talk button that ran all the way across the circuit board. <laughs> Any of you old guys remember those things? Mm-hmm. I remember them, but I don't, I don't understand all this hardware talk. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you pressed a button to talk. Right. Oh. Well, there's that was about everything that was that's everything that was on the list. Anything else oh. going on? No. No, I already uh, talked about the three interviews we have coming up. I'm still trying to line up some other ones too. Um, there's some special stuff to talk about 
possibly in a few weeks is if, once everything's verified and everything's happened that uh, we might be able to talk about. I can't say anything until that's all finished. Unfortunately, so. I got a question for you. Um, the other day, I was looking at MultiView, the you know, the thing that came in, and um, what was the idea of MultiView? When so that was the graphical part, like yeah, graphical shell, basically the icons to mm -hmm. click instead of having to type in commands. Why was it so different than um, Deskmate? Well, so okay, um, I, I I've just wrote a program in Windent menus or multi-view menus or whatever you want to call it. And um, for my basic program, I can just specify windows that look just like multi-view shows you in very little code. And uh, you can click on them with the mouse and do what you want to do. You don't have to write any of that stuff. You just say, hey, OS 9, I want three menus. I want them to do these things and return me these, these commands if anyone clicks on them. And then you're done. OS9 will tell you, hey, I got a someone clicked on this or they hit the Alt G hotkey and you know what to go do. You don't have to write any of that stuff. Where Deskmate had to do everything itself. It, it did the menus, it did the programs, it did everything. That's why it was yeah. so limited. Because I'll be honest, Ron. I think if if Multiview had been ready and it was late, <laughs> it didn't come out, right. I think, until the beginning of 88, it was a year, year off schedule. If they had had that ready before Deskmate for the Cocoa 3 was written, they probably would have used it in Deskmate 3 because it would have made right. their coding a lot smaller and a lot simpler. And a lot nicer looking. Yeah, yeah because uh, the words multi-view is kind of alluring. Like it's like, uh, you know, something I'd want, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I think it was, just, it was too far late. Like they didn't have the... They barely got the graphics driver running by the time OS 10 Level 2 was released at the beginning of 1987. Like, it actually finally came out January, roughly, uh, unless you had Rogue. And then you got the earlier version that was a bit buggy. Um, but MultiView, they were expecting to be out within six months of that, and it, it took a year. And I think that's why... Like, Tandy didn't the, really sell any programs that used the MultiView graphical interface. So I think it was, was basically third party. Yeah, I was about to ask yeah. that. Right. Yeah. In fact, I think Planet Engine was the first program I ever saw that use that window system outside of the multi-view interface itself. Yeah. And I saw a few. Zach Sessions well. used it on a couple of his games uh, later on. Oh, probably like at the same time as Planet Engine. Was it M-Shell or something like that used it? There were a few. Alan, Alan Huffman did his own text shell, but yeah, M-Shell mm -hmm. and a few others, I think, used it. Uh, but yeah, Tandy themselves never did, which is kind of odd. They created this windowing well, system did... and then promptly did nothing with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. What did Home Publisher use? It had its that own was as well. Its custom direct write to or not even direct write it was using legal calls to draw right to the two color screen like hell. <laughs> that's, that's a great program <laughs> yeah honestly if they if they hadn't restricted to fit in 128k it could have been a hell of a lot better i wish that i could its biggest problem i wish i could do all that in my web browser because that would make a great web browser but uh yeah I, i'll work with you on the web browser things i have some ideas Using uh -oh. the existing system. Scroll bars. Oh. <laughs> so, Curtis, can. can your site be the killer app for the Web Wrangler? That was the whole reason I keep my site as dumb as it is. Is to, you can run it from a cocoa because I used to log into my own site with links to make sure the links and stuff worked from my cocoa. I would actually verify. I'd download the pictures and gifts and make sure they displayed properly. 
So yeah, that's always been the plan long-term for 20 some odd years. I just never did anything. And now Rick is. So, In fact, I just published a, well, I'm about to release another blog post on the tags I have, the tags we will soon have to write source HTML for the Cocoa, which I want to right. uh, get that done so I can ask the Cocoa work guy to, Hey. Yeah, that's that's the other reason that uh, EOU by default loads all the fonts because then Rick on his web browser can assume that the Cocoa user that's running this has italic fonts and has bolder fonts and stuff like that and can actually use that to his advantage. So, uh, how does that work? Does uh, so the computer has to look at the incoming data and see an italic coming up? It well, it'll be, be an italic short, tag. Right? It'll be like a yeah, less right. than I greater than. That means turn italics on. Okay. Right. And the problem I have right now is the normal OS 9. Well, the Mac font I'm using because it's easiest to read. with the Plus you have the narrow version, so you can have your two different font sizes. Right. And I, I well, so I have the larger lowercase and stuff, but then there's no italics there. We have bold and proportional as our two attributes. And oh, that cool. doesn't quite match up. Yeah, like bold but bold works okay, but yeah. Yeah, bold Rick, works okay, but... Rick, you ought to um, do a, some kind of a little show on, on our show here on all that stuff that you're talking about. It looks... Yeah, I think we're trying to... Thinking about putting that together at some point, aren't we, Curtis? Yeah. Kind of I think that would make Henry a good and... tech talk thing for uh, sure Mark's would. thing. Just, yeah, and sure even showing how it works under the hood so people can do it themselves. Well, right. That's the whole point of picking the project that I did as as the hardware demo. Is that it? Pretty much touches on everything. You're downloading files. You're formatting text. You're, you know, yeah, you've got scroll bars and buffer stuff to management, go all of that crap. So. When pop down windows and uh, Unf- menu bars and stuff. Unfortunately, the refactor is taking a lot longer than I expected because I have to change everything. I originally yeah. wrote this pro this program to do everything itself. So it poked the chip raw and and I ran out of basic workspace pretty quick. So in the next Henry, well, you can do the linking modules in and out as you need them, like I'm well, doing well, in my game. It's, but, it's, yeah. it's kind of a one-way game. But anyway, um Henry wrote a whole network stack with things like uh if config and DHCP and NTP and you know. All of these things that are external, so I don't have to do that anymore. I cut 10k out of a 22k program, switching to his libraries, so that gives me room to add tables and images and some of the stuff that I ran out of space for. So, Unfortunately, uh, to do that, I had to rewrite the entire program from scratch, so I don't really <laughs> have anything to share until <laughs> I'm done, which you know, we're like at 85 percent now. So, so have you thought of um. Coming up with some kind of a cocoa um, fan because uh, the cocoa is going to be working overtime. <laughs> processing all <laughs> no, that's why not. we put a six three zero nine in there because it runs cooler. And you don't oh, need okay. a fan. That's that's the point. It's not the cocoa is not working hard. The Wisnet chip is working hard. Who cares? It's okay. it's got this clock for this for the job. The cocoa just takes serial data off of that chip and puts it on the screen or puts it in an image file or downloads it to you know whatever. I mean, we've got wget, so we don't have to worry about x modem, y modem, modem modem. Just wget file name, and boom, here it comes. So uh, things are really going to start rolling pretty quick. So I didn't cool. intend to make an ad right now, but uh, there it is. Looks <laughs> yeah. like fun. All right. Well, shall we go and play outside? Ooh.
I'm not gonna. It's it's cold and rainy looking out here. So, oh no, the big blue room is active here. Maybe I should do that. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> cool here too, around 109. <laughs> oh, back and right on. Hey, actually, I'm gonna only- do something. I'm gonna do something a little naughty right now before we end the show here. So, Uh-oh. if you're a member of the Amigos Discord and you're a, a person that donates money to the Coco Show because they have their kind of the Patreon style thing set up. They have a Coco Show pool where they they have the people that are you know on a pay a certain pay tier that can now pick the game that they're going to review next. And uh, Boat has just announced today. Sorry, Boat, I'm going to kind of steal your thunder, but they're kind of promoting your show too, so it's not all bad. Um, they got three games to pick from, and uh, I'm only one person, so I can only do one vote. But maybe I'll take a, a group panel <laughs> vote here for you guys and submit that mm. as my vote. We can throw the vote. <laughs> Which of the three games would you like them to try next, Varlock? Stellar Lifeline or Lucifer's Kingdom. I'll throw those on my on my site if you want to take a look at them. Well, what do you recommend? <laughs> like, well, I wouldn't be asking if I was recommending. I'd just give them my vote. So it's up to you guys. But if I like those of you who don't know, it's basically Archon with 3D fighting instead of 2D. Um, so Lifeline, of course, is Steve Bjork's game where you have to shepherd your fuel cells going across and prevent them from getting hit by mines and ships and asteroids. And Lucifer's Kingdom, I'm trying to that's the um, dragon game that's actually kind of a, a Xevious style game, isn't it? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah. I mean, we played that one on the Game Line Challenge a little while ago. <clears throat> actually just to make your life easier for those of you who have not are uh, remembering the games or my text descriptions suck let me just load up screenshots here from my site and i'll let you guys take a quick look oh that's good that's fair so there's a vote for lucifer's kingdom okay so this is varlock uh written by greg zumwalt so you basically play chess this is more like the archon style but then you end up whenever you attack a piece um, then you're on this floating rectangular platform and you're running around with 3D wireframes trying to beat each other up or knock each other off the platform, which kills the other opponent, which means a weaker chess piece technically can beat a stronger one if you're good at the fighting part. Hmm. And then Stellar Lifeline, uh, this is Steve Yorks, where you're the ship in the middle and you've got asteroids and stuff coming in later levels. You get mines and spaceships coming after you. And you have to try to protect your fuel cells. They'll come and grab them and steal them going the opposite direction, which spreads out your fleet even more. So you have to kind of like, you know, try to gauge. You might have to sacrifice a few type thing. We we played that on the Game On Challenge, I think. Yep. Yeah, pretty sure we have. And Lucifer's Kingdom, uh, this is the one we actually had this one in the Game On Challenge too recently, I think. Yep. Um, but basically, it's kind of a Xevious 3D scrolling, or not oh, 3D, one, uh, yeah. 2D scrolling vertical shooter with a lot of different shapes and stuff and floating on. So it's actually based in the arcade game um, called Star Force, if you guys are familiar with that one. So that's I'd the three. For, for that one. Okay, let me let me uh, write these down here because I'll, I'll lose track of who's saying what here. So grab a piece of paper. We'll just go through the panel. You guys have seen them all now. Um, yep, so I'll stop sharing and uh, so the just write down the names here so far. Lock, Stellar Lifeline, and Lucifer's Kingdom. So we'll go one at a time in the order that I'm seeing them on the screen here. Uh, Mark Bosley, which one do you vote for? Oh, let's do Lucifer's Kingdom, okay, Rick Euland. Which one is the chess piece that you can make up for your bad Varlock. chess strategy? Varlock. Okay. <laughs> K 
Okay, Ken Waters. Stellar lifeline all the way. Wow, it's evenly <laughs> split so far. <laughs> We're really cutting it down now. <laughs> so We're going to cut David's lad. I didn't see all the choices, but I saw Stellar Lifeline. It looked interesting. So that's my vote. What do you mean you didn't see all the choices? I stepped away from my computer for a moment. Oh, okay. So Stellar Lifeline blindly voted on. I'm going to excuse myself because I'm the one actually going to be posting the vote. So Coconut Bob, Bob Emery, go ahead. Uh, Varlock. Okay. Ron Delvo. Warlock. <laughs> Varlock. Varlock. Yeah. Okay. Kevin. Uh, the last one. What do you consider the last one? <laughs> That's the black and white The last one, one you showed. It's the first Lucifer's, King. Lucifer's Kingdom? Kingdom. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Number three. Alan. Um, I can go ahead and cast my own vote directly. Oh, okay, we'll skip you two yeah. then, because I'm in that boat too. Uh, Nick Marantes. Uh, number three. Lucifer's, Lucifer's Kingdom. Kingdom. Okay, David Ladd. Paging David Ladd. Uh, technically, here. I think I can post two. Technically. Okay, then we'll skip you as well. Actually, you can take my vote off because I already voted for Stellar Lifeline. Oh, uh, did you? Yeah. Okay, I'll mm -hmm. remove that. So we're back to one there. Okay, Jason, if you're still there. Uh, how about Neutroid? Nope, that's not a real hey, game. Yeah, can I change my vote? <laughs> that's not a real game. I would change mine too. <laughs> uh, let's go with Stellar Lifeline. Okay, so that fixes up Ken's vote. And please change your background. I really need French fries now. Okay, so Stellar Lifeline drops off the list because it only has two votes. But now we have a tie, three for Varlock, three for Lucifer's Kingdom. Well, so I'm going to go through all of you again to pick between just those two, because I unfortunately well, didn't record who voted what. In the chat, there's two votes for Lucifer's Kingdom. Ah, oh, there? there you go. Okay. And only? There's no other ones in there? No. No? That's it. Okay. Then let's go for Lucifer's Kingdom. <laughs> I will register my vote. <laughs> and boat's going to flip in me, but whatever. <laughs> And I'll just, just you know, the live voting right now has got uh, the most votes for Stellar Lifeline by one over Lucifer's Kingdom with Varlock and Dead Last. So I'll let you guys that are actually on the panel there as well vote vote to your conscience. But yeah, I'm I'm probably the biggest guy here, so don't I get two votes? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think if you paid uh, Boat and Aaron twice as much to be on the voting committee, they would yeah. probably give you that. There we go. Ron throwing his weight around again. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron right. might, might be bigger. Ready for an outro? Oh, oh I, I one other one last thing and then the outro. Um, okay. So I mentioned earlier in the show that I've, I've actually finished the timeline for all Coco games announced that I know of for 1982. There is a ton of stuff we're missing that we don't have. There's a ton of stuff from the 10 or the Terra City uh, microcomputer source book, I think it was called, which they published, I think, four or five years in a row, which is basically anybody could submit stuff that they were selling, even if they never advertised in another magazine. Plus, there's a ton of stuff in Rainbow and CCN and 80 Micro and Byte and et cetera that uh, is missing. If you guys can go to my site, if you guys have some old Coco games kicking around on discs or cassettes or anybody's watching or listening to the show as well, Go through the list of all the stuff. It's italicized in stuff. We do not seem to have copies on the archive. I don't have personal copies. They're not on the internet archive either. 
If you have any of those, please send them to me so I can get them onto the site. But there's literally dozens and dozens of games from that one year alone that uh, actually it's probably close to 100 that we do not have. And, uh, you know, trying to recover this stuff there. I would love to see if anybody out in the audience might have some of these missing games. We've had a few show up, so it's not well, impossible. Let me ask you, though, um, if if you find you have one of those games and it's like hacked or, you know. Even if it's hacked, I've got hacked ones on there now because I'd rather have the game mentioned and showing how it plays than not have it at all. Okay. Why is the name Bryza coming to mind? I've already asked him. He doesn't have a lot of these either. <laughs> Okay. You see, you find a couple uh, that I was missing that I, were in the earlier 1982, but I haven't seen any of the later ones yet. So, so th this list is on your website? Your Yeah, let me post the link directly to that particular page, and then you guys can just send me a message in Discord or email me. But uh... So, we, see, the thing is, you have to put it in a heart, you know, on a, a floppy and make it copy and everything you know no just if you can copy down gnstc and then just grab the file off in your pc or mac or whatever you use and just send it up that way yeah it's like you got to set up for it so i'll just show the screen so you guys can see what i'm talking about actually i'll show you how to get to it too because uh i know nick was having issues finding it earlier it's probably not one of the more commonly ones on my site that people hit probably because i don't advertise it because i'm an idiot but okay so there's my site in all of its, you know, ready for cocoa display glory. Mm -hmm. And then right off the top here, you got alternate indexes. And the one I'm concentrating on lately has been the timeline index. So if you do that, that goes through and, and does releases by year and month. Uh, and this includes ones we do not have. So like Radio Shack is the only company that released stuff officially in 1980 that I know of. Um, and there's a few that were advertised, but were late. So they're not even on here. I'm trying to get real release dates, not announced. I want uh, to point here, out one. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I wanted to point out one thing about your Cocoa compatible site. On the very first intro page, um, you've got a link that's about 195 characters long. <laughs> oh, that does that. Uh, Wasn't that not handle it? Uh, well, not many people do that. Most, most links are a very short underlined tag. And then regular description. And for some reason, you had a link that's really long. I mean, on, I on the main side now, but it was good. Yeah, on your game side. Uh, where where you first started. Okay, here we go. Official license and cross-platform index new games that were released on multiple platforms of mutual license purchase. No, it's graphic extensive. That's all inside the link. <laughs> that's a well, big the, the link it the link itself is just originals.html. Yeah. Well, no, inside the link tag is official, is a whole paragraph. Yeah, that's the text much. representation you put on the screen for the link. The link itself well, is actually short. Right, but, but nobody yeah, does yeah. that. Nobody nobody puts that much stuff underlined. So I figured you, the Cocoa owner might have one of those mice that we saw earlier. It's a bit jittery and jumps lower. This will give you a really <laughs> wide range to hit when you click it, so it'll I'm still saying, work. It was, it was a good <laughs> thing. It, po it pointed out something I never thought I would have to handle. <laughs> so uh, let's go. So, so what is it? Um, Rick, do you think he should only have the blue part be the official license cross? Well, well, normally, I, I, yeah, I normally, there. yeah, yeah, we probably would do that, but you would have something like official license index. That's the link, and then there's. I did this so Rick could test it. out his software and make sure it right. works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it works on a regular <laughs> browser, so it needs it. to work here. 
22 years ago when I first created this site, that's exact. No, actually, it's longer now. It's 25 years now. I think I first started this in 97, the first version of it. All right. It's youth and inexperience. All right. Here's the timeline index. You can see in 81, anything that has the blue links. Now, some of these will show up purple because I've been testing some of them as I go. But anything that's in italics, like say this one here, Animated Hangman, first advertised 80 Micro, April 1981. It's a basic game. It was released by Soft Sector Marketing. It was actually their first Coco game ever. They also later released stuff like Color Caterpillar. But the software name isn't going to be that, is it? What, what do you mean? Is it not animated hangman. Would it? Would it yeah. be? Yeah. What would What would be the name on the disc? You know, if I had it. Anima oh, animated hangman. Probably. Oh, you mean the file name? Yeah. The file name. No, you yeah. probably if you find something that sounds like it could be it, you'll have to run it and then see if the actual title screen says it's animated, animated hangman, hangman by Soft Sector. All right. Yeah. Could be AH. And but Kevin, you were waving your hand there, so I'm not sure. I'm just saying goodbye. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought hey, you were. Good day, sir. Gotta I thought you were saying, "Hey, I've got discs of these all over the place." Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> you should make that an upload link. <laughs> so, anyway, so like here's the 1981. We've got a few. We've got most of these. Some of these earlier ones, and then it starts going into more and more missing. Or... What's so that? Tapes. I'm sorry. Two people talked at once. What was that? You should be looking for tapes on some of these earlier ones. Oh yeah, yeah. I have some of these I got off yeah. my own own tapes. Yeah, but some have been sent to disc too. You know, after all these years. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I, I honestly, where you find them, I don't care. Just if you find them, send them up to me in whatever format you can. A WAV file off a tape, a disc image, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I just I want to try to fill in these gaps. So there are all the the games that have um, dark lettering but no yeah if it's all black and the title which is always on the left column here like the very yeah. beginning of each line is in italic bold those okay. are the ones we're missing now you'll see like the first year i've actually managed to find a fair chunk of them but as we get further and further on here like here's 82 and you'll start seeing more and more chunks that are black and then it starts getting even worse and you know here's a whole whack by one company we don't have a whole bunch there and you know it just keeps getting going on and on and well, let me ask now you, are some of these games actually pretty good that are gone? I have no idea. Never seen them. <laughs> Never seen them. <laughs> I mean, are they ones that have been advertised in the magazines and you looked at it and thought, oh, that would be cool? Well, the description says in most of them that, that when they it's were It's the best game ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Exactly. But so there's some have... pretty big name ones here, like uh, Nelson Software Systems, who did stuff like... Um, uh, Fembot's Revenge and Beyond the Simian Moon. There's there's a couple combat packs and uh, stuff like that. Don't have those. Um, as I was mentioning before, the Rugby Circle, who did Buzzard Bait, did uh, Color Caterpillar. We're missing their Color Alien Defense. We're missing three of their initial launch titles. All machine language games. They're not basic ones like some of the really, really early stuff was. Don't, Don't have those. The flight Simulator packs, too. Which Flight Simulator packs? Oh, Flight Sim 2, you mean? Yeah, Flight Simulator. Eh. Well, there's Flight Sim really? 1, there's Flight Sim 2, Worlds of Flight. I mean, I didn't know which one you're talking about. Well, they have different city packs or what? Yeah, there's a few of those actually on the archive, I know. Uh, yeah, the Sublogic game had a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's at least three or four. I know Bill Nobles actually showed me a few because he's played them on the Coco. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what the complete list is. 
I've even got the maps, printed maps somewhere for those. Oh, like here's another company that did a lot of machine language games early on called Bumblebee Software. We've got a few of them. We've got Cyborg Wars, which is actually the first Robotron clone on the Cocoa. It predates Robotech by several months and actually is more accurate to the arcade, to be honest. It doesn't look as good. Uh, they also did Nova Pinball, which we have, um, which is one of the earlier pinball games. But then they got these other ones, like they had a uh, Rally X clone, they had a Pac-Man clone, a Demolition Derby clone. I don't know what mm. Bug Zap's a clone of, but oh, those are all missing. Most of the software I have are on discs that have been written on that, you know, they're not originals. But there's there's lots of stuff missing here. And there's some where entire companies, we don't have a single one of them, like this inter Starship software or Intercept Enterprises here. Um, none of those. K&K &K Computer, where we've got like two out of 30 type things. So I'm hoping... Somebody on the panel or somebody out listening or watching the show uh, later on can go through the list and if they've got any of these, I would love to see them. Well, let me ask you, has anybody ever done an uh, inventory of what we do have to know for sure? Well, just the color computer archive. That's, yeah, that's, that's our I mean. inventory. Yeah. Okay. Well, then this. Because they have, they have a search function. Yeah. Uh, so I use that all the time. And I even sometimes I'll find like alternative names. But here, the Radio Shack Tier City Application Software Sourcebook Volume 4, because they did several. There is a few games in the uh, 1981 Volume 3 for the Cocoa as well we don't have, but there's only like five or six. But this entire list right here is stuff that is missing Boom. just from that. Wow. Okay. And that includes those Rugby Circle ones I was talk talking to you about earlier. Uh, let me see if I can find where that is right here. Okay. Did, they, did those come in a, a bound book-looking book thing? I don't know. Well, they're, because they're, we've never seen them. Like, how do you even guess? Well, right. So uh, there's some Adventure International ones that we're missing as well. There's multiple ones there that, uh, like Triad, now, which is I a cross-platform one. Games Packs, they're called. Yep, no, I've, there's a few that we do have. But we got to identify which specific ones. If it's there's even some game packs that are named exactly the same from different companies that have totally different games in them. Oh, right. So you got to be kind of careful on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I have maybe a thousand discs. It seems like, you know, they're all. Well, go, Ron, please go through them. If you and just go through yeah. this list, you can even cut and paste just the uh, the ones that are missing. Obviously, you don't need the other ones because we already have yeah. them. But if you've got any of the missing pieces, I would love to have them. Yeah. Um, and put them on the site because uh, it, it's funny. I thought it would get better as the years went on. Like I start 1980. Well, 80, we had everything because it's handy. <laughs> 80, 81, there was a fair number missing, but a fair number we have. And I figured because they're really early, not too many people knew about them. Not too many people even knew there was a third party market for the Cocoa back in 81. So they wouldn't even know to look. Um, I figured we'd be getting, as the later years go on, we'd be getting more and more that we have and less and less that we're missing. And it's actually been the complete opposite going through the end of 82. It's, it's getting worse because there was so much stuff coming out that people only bought the big name stuff like the Spectral Associates and the Tom Mix and a couple other companies and all these other smaller ones who probably, you know, some of them may actually made some decent games, didn't get bought or didn't get bought enough that they got pirated. <laughs> so if you've got any of those, I'd love to see them. Well, I do have a bunch of tapes to to go through. Yeah, I've gone through all my tapes. I did find a couple Aardvark games that had not been in the archive or on my list, which are now up in there. 
and I one adventure national one I found two, and uh, you know, See, so I managed to recover five or six myself in my tape collection. But the bad thing is, I you know I wasn't a big game guy and never really have been, so I would get software and you know put it aside and and then you know occasionally on a boring day i'd pull stuff out and look at it you know and go through and just bring it up and see if it runs and you know and that's pretty much where it would go back to <laughs> you know and um i have it but you know yeah, you just never really looked at it because it doesn't yeah. really interest you that much right but so i might i might have stuff i mean i would like to see somebody else tackle the non-game stuff um because there's quite a bit of utility software or home software or um you know compiler languages like there's yeah, about five versions of fourth so, almost yeah. all of those are missing um there's another version of flex that i don't know if it ever officially got released that frank hogg put out after the flex that mikey's been working on called zxex which actually was supposed to be a more advanced version it was advertised in 84 several years after and from, uh, from you nobody's found that yet either is this Sorry? from you looking at rainbow i mean oh not just you... rainbow <laughs> Color Computer News, Hot Cocoa, Compute, okay. 16 Micro Journal, uh, Color Computer Magazine, Hot Cocoa, 80 US Journal, um, probably about 10 to 11, 12 magazines per month I'm going through that I have access to the digitized copies of. And there's probably a few I'm missing. I'm starting to go through Dragon stuff now, too. So that adds several magazines they had. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I was trying to rush to get 82 done because I'm feeding not only my timeline page here, but I'm feeding the uh, Chronologically Gaming channel so that when he comes back from his uh, summer holidays that he'll be able to just charge straight through it uh, without me having to do research on the fly every week. And then I can get back to some programming stuff for a few months here and catch up and get the next you know EOU release out, et cetera, and some other projects I want to work on, like working with Rick on the browser type thing. Um, have you heard of Microcom? Yeah, Microcom Software. Yeah, they were did based, word power. They were amongst other things. Yeah, they were based in Rochester. It yep. was an Indian guy. Yeah, I met him at the Cocoa Fest several years in a row. Friendly yeah. guys. I bought Word Power 3.0, 3.2, and 3.3 off them. Yeah, I used to go over and look at all their stuff they had, you know. And um uh, one once or twice he fixed a computer for me. And um and we'd we'd sit and talk for a long time and um it you know, he's he's a neat guy. So I don't know if I have some, is some of his stuff in there that's missing too, or no? They didn't really publish games, so they wouldn't be for me. But if oh. there's anything missing, like I do know I have to scan, um, like the word power, there's a version of the word power manual on the archive that is, uh, I think, 3.0. And I've actually got a later one. I haven't had a chance to scan it yet, but I found it. It's not the latest. There's a 3.3 update as well, but I got the 3.2 manual. In fact, I um, did I did a sign oh, yeah. for him. <laughs> Word, Word Power 3.3 actually was an addendum to 3.2. So I got to scan that in too. Cool. I, I did their sign. Uh, I made styrofoam letters that said mic microcom. Use even the their uh, Word Power 3.3. Uh, well, it's going to show up here, but the reference card for all the different key commands. Oh, yeah. This this, this was a word processor. For those of you who don't know, it was a Cocoa 3 only word processor around the 80 column mode, but it had the virtual scrolling enable. So you had a full 120 character wide screen. It would auto scroll as you're typing. Uh, used the full 512K, had a print spooler built in. Uh, you can embed graphics into it to dump on to, as part of your pictures. It was pretty advanced for a Cocoa one. Not quite max 10 level, but it was, it was pretty good. 
had a yeah. built-in calculator you could pop up if you're doing stuff with numbers. You could punch in like what is eighty five times three point three or something, and then paste paste it right into your document. Yeah, I think this guy was a uh, genius, like guy, because he he was you know really smart. Um, you know, just yeah, the guy that did be... Window Writer for Owlware was also an East Indian guy. And he was very smart too. The, uh, he did several versions of that, and that's that's actually one I'm actively working on decompiling because I want to actually, since we sped up the graphic text routines in Nitrous Nine so much. I want to switch it to a graphic screen so you can actually see real italics and real bolds, kind of like Rick's doing with the browser. Was his name Santuani or something like that? Or That was the guy from uh, Microcom, yeah. The guy that yeah. did Window Writer was Raj something. I can't remember his last name. But I think he was a younger guy that did that. Yeah, anyway, there was two, two East Indian guys yeah. I remember meeting at the show all the time. I, I, I wonder if they're still around in, uh, in the Rochester area. Maybe I'll look them up. And, yeah, uh, see, I mean, you, if you've actually has, talked to them, they're familiar with you. They wouldn't know yeah, me from Adam. Yeah. So no, I you know I because they kind of took that. over um, in the cocoa market. I don't know if they took over the company. I don't think they did. But as far as the cocoa market, what they were covering, they kind of took over from Spectrum Projects when Bob Rosen shut it down. Yeah, they kind of became had, the cocoa three version of that. Yeah, they had uh, racks of uh, those uh, plastic bags with uh, games in them. You know. Um. I you hear went, copyrighted content playing in the background. Yeah. You probably do. Anyway, uh, this is a public appeal to everybody out there in, in, in the Cocoa Nation. Um, if you've got any of these and you find them on cassette or disc or whatever else, please uh, send them up. And if you send me one that it turns out that I actually do already have it or it's mislabeled or something, that that's okay. I, I don't mind going through a few things to find the gems that are missing. So okay. I noticed a lot of those were from the rainbow. Those are probably in the archive. Just they aren't. Okay. Do we have all the rainbow on discs? Uh, no, they're missing a few. Actually, I've got a few rainbow and tapes here that I've also got lined up that they're missing on the archive that I haven't had a chance to do yet. I think I have a full set of rainbow on disc. I mean, it's a large double. Um, like right through to May 93 when they shut down? I think so. I have to look. I'll have to check the archive because I can't remember which ones they're missing. It was some of the earlier ones I think they were missing the most of. They're, um, you know, red labels. Yeah, I have a few rainbow and discs back buried somewhere. Yeah. But these are the rainbow and tapes. I've like this. I got one that's actually the. Uh, the rainbow, I think the second adventure or the first adventure contest, because there's one side of the disc that's missing on the archive, and I've actually got both. So mm. but I mean archiving all this stuff is one thing I've I've always been interested in doing. Now games are obviously the most popular, which is why I'm doing them. Um, and I have a game site, so it kind of matches. But uh, I I mean some other people should take over for the utilities of programming languages, uh, alternate operating systems like SDOS and Stardos and Stuff like that, uh, you know, different versions of that. There's uh, different versions of various word processors. Like I just mentioned, WordPower, the archive has, I think, the executable for 3.3, but the documentation is from 3.0 quite a bit changed between them. So I'll I'll get the 3.2, 3.3 here scanned in at some point. Plus, you know, old club newsletters and stuff like that. I've got a whole raft of those from our local club. I've seen some other people have been uploading those lately. So at least those are starting to get recovered. But there's a ton of stuff. And I, I want to be able to preserve it as much as we can. A lot of people that originally wrote this stuff are gone. Like they passed away. So you can't get them anymore. You know what's weird is uh, if you're not doing it and the archiving around, there's nothing. 
Yeah, there's the Internet Archive, which has been in a bit of illegal trouble and money troubles lately. So I don't know if I can trust that to still be around after another year or two. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, a while back, I went and tried to copy as much as I could from the archive. And I have that on my hard drive. But, you know, it, it's been updated, I don't know, a billion times since then, you know. Yeah. And Guillaume actually does do an updated zip every so many months where he takes the entire archive and rezips it all up so you can download it in one shot. You can? Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. It's 600 and some odd meg zipped right now, I think, for the whole thing. Oh, well, that's the last one I looked. <laughs> Less yeah. than a gig. Right. Wow. But zip, though, like if you un- unzip it, it's like four gig or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's magazines, newsletters, source code, what little there is on there for that, uh, games, utilities, wow. everything. Well, I think we should do that. Everybody should have a copy of that just in case it goes down. We have something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's not a bad idea. I mean, I don't know if Guillaume has any off-site backups that he has or maybe backup mirror sites or something or in the cloud or something that he's keeping his stuff on, but hopefully he is. But I did, it's just too much work for me to try to do everything else. Like I, I created a logo group on the on the Discord here because I discovered there's three versions of logo for the Cocoa, which I didn't even know. Um, and I can't remember what started me on that trip. I think it was the Apple logo they mentioned on the Retro Computing Roundtable podcast. And so they were mentioning some of... advanced features on one of them. And I was going, I remember doing that on the Cocoa even before that. What are you talking about? <laughs> advanced. You know, the... Um... Mr. Brain's group there. What's what is it? Uh, Retro Innovations. You mean his company or no? The the club. One side. Uh, I got a brain freeze going on. <laughs> the the uh, club. Glenside. Yeah, Glenside. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. <clears throat> they have um, some. Uh, do they have some kind of? Archive they have some original discs which actually have gone through, and I have picked up a few things that I was missing from that. Um, I, I did maybe expand it since the last time I looked at it, but uh, you would think that they, since they have resources to a de- de- degree or so, that they would um, pick up and help the archive. Well, they, they, they've kept be... the original discs, so they are kind of archiving the originals, like labels, manuals, the whole, you know, not just yeah. scans, but. Um, but they have huge holes in their collection too, because not everybody bought everything. That's that's yeah. the problem. And some of these advertisers only lasted like three six months. And yeah. if it's earlier on, when you know, a lot of people didn't even know there was third party, you'd you'd get a back issue of Rainbow Go. Oh, that sounded cool. Oh, it's not on sale anymore. Company mm-hmm. doesn't exist. You know, um, I bet you Brian has a bunch of stuff. Palmer, um, the guy that. Does- Brian Weasler. Weasler. Oh, Weasler. Yeah. I have talked things. He doesn't know what he has, does he? He hasn't gone through everything yet, but he's he's he collects more hardware than software. Yeah. I think on average. He's he's he might have a few things, but I haven't seen too much that he's brought up I haven't seen before yet. Right. No, he's constantly buying stuff, so maybe that'll change. (laughs) Yeah, every time there's a purchase like that and somebody gives up their collection, there's goodies. (laughs) Yeah. And we are trying to get some collections to come to Glenside and stuff too, which we'll hopefully have some announcements within the next few weeks here uh, from some authors and stuff from back in the day. So, so when and Glenside, Brian's actually helping me with some of that, when Glenside has their auctions and stuff, they don't wind up selling stuff that they should have kept, do they? 
<laughs> I think if it's if it's software, I think they try to make copies of it first to put in the archive, then they'll sell it because some collectors want the actual originals. They don't just want a digital yeah. copy. They want the originals, right. right? As long as they're archived first, that doesn't bother me if you want to use it as a fundraiser yeah. or whatever. Makes sense. But I mean, all the retro communities are hitting this where stuff's gone or it was so copy protected that it didn't get broke before the discs went bad or whatever, you know, type thing or yeah. rare titles. Would you say that you're surprised after all these years that discs have lasted as long as they have? Because I never uh, really thought about it back then because I mean, computers were new. I had no idea how long they're supposed to last. Like, yeah, my, is it like a book? Have, it lasts for hundreds of years unless you put it in a fire. I don't know. I'd say 80 um, or 90% of my discs all work. Yeah, I'd have to say the same yeah. here. Even my cassettes work. Even the ones I did in C90s, which you're not even supposed to use for computers because they yeah. stretch too much, still work. Yeah, that's, right? that's the kind of stuff you take a look at that car, uh, cassette and you think to yourself, this can't be good. And then you try it and it works and it's like, yep. what? When I, when I recovered, I can't remember which way, one of the Aardvark games I had backed up from renting it from the club and the, the club copy disappeared decades ago. But I actually uh, put it on a C90, and I actually found the label saying it's on here. And go, ah, C90, that's never gonna freaking work. This is yeah. this is gone. First try, load, no problem. I oh no, second try, I had to adjust the volume. I had it a bit too low the first time. That was. Yeah, it. I have a, a cassette tape of the very first Columbia launch, you know, uh, STS one, because I was there and I had a tape player re record it. You know, I was standing there, and um, I lost the tape for a while, and then I found it. And and I'm looking at it, thinking it this is not going to play. The, the even even the little pad was gone, you know, that holds it against the head. So I found another. I took it apart and put another pad piece in there and uh, tried it. And it was um, Sertron or something like that, <laughs> you know. But it worked good. It went, and the sound was great. So I don't know. You just. I, it's I'm kind surprised. of funny because this this actually came up during one of the VCFs, and I can't remember if it's the east one or the south one. But they had a, a talking about preservations and stuff here, and the one person was recommending on the panel you should print out listings because they're talking about source code preservation. They said you know the further more recently we get, the more and more different formats are suddenly showing up. Like you had like these big you know drum things and stuff here, paper tapes that would last for years and years and years and nowadays you know the the format that everybody's using changes every five years yeah because we went from eight inch floppies to five and a quarter to three and a half and then hard drives and then compact flash and then sd and you know it just keeps rapidly changing rapidly changing and you know what what can you get that's a hundred years old that still works paper we've right, got human from thousands of years ago we can still read papyrus yeah. you can read from five thousand years ago <laughs> you know and and you is any of this digital stuff going to work in five thousand years i would say no Right. We'll have either progressed so far we don't even have a clue what it is anymore. I mean, we're already hitting problems with with certain oddball digital formats that were proprietary to some specific company, and the company went out of business, and the algorithm was never figured out, and you can't recover like a CAD thing or something. And that's going to happen more and more as we keep progressing faster and faster. I got so, books of CDs up uh, up in uh, my uh, storage area, and they're um, you know supposed to be a hundred years. <laughs> Well, you remember when they predicted that CDRs, like not the rewritable ones, CDRs would last a, a century, and and yeah. you know the right. the glue's peeling apart already and screwing it up twenty years later. Yeah. So the only thing you can rely on is human readable. Readable. Why can't I talk? Human readable text can always be read. A human readable drawing can always be seen, as long as we still use eyes. After that, I don't know what we're going to do. But until yeah. that point, 
that's that's kind of the way to go. It's not dependent on any. The, the contradiction to this, of course, is that code is getting bigger and more complex. So whereas I could have, you know, listed off a game, even a machine language game 30, 40 years ago on, you know, paper, maybe about this thick, you know, list Windows now or list Linux <laughs> now or list Mac OS 10 now. You know, you're going to be filling a room. Isn't it true that nobody knows how uh, actually Windows works, you know, in in no well, it's can... it's it's like the medical field. You've got specialists on every little yeah. tiny little portion of it that know but that no part one... really well, but they don't know the grand picture yet. Right, right. That's why we still play with antique computers because one yeah, person you can, still can understand, understand the, the entire computer. <laughs> yeah. Where in Windows, yep. you can understand the task manager. You know? <laughs> and then these people that program in machine language don't um, note what they did, right? Well, yeah, because back then, especially, I mean, comments took room. And if you wanted to make a big program, you didn't have enough room for the actual code. We put comments. That's why right. Nick, you know, doesn't do much commenting in his. And most of the programs back then didn't, or they made very brief ones. Like this next thousand lines of code draws something. That's what they put as a remark. It's up to you to figure out or remember what the heck the thousand lines actually did. But at least you have a clue what that routine's for. Or my favorite example of that, which is Color Max Deluxe, where the, the source files basically say, beware, Eric was here. And that's oh, the yeah. only comment in the whole file. Yeah. And that was more like an in-joke between him and Greg Miller. So, <laughs> so what is that, like a proprietary um, buffer? You know, you're never going to know. Well, yeah, I mean, if you really sleuth it out, I mean, when we were disassembling Nitrous 9 or disassembling you know, rescue on fractalus or any of these other things here. I have to go figure out and comment myself so I can keep track of what the heck the programmer was doing. I don't have the original source code for those. So you can, if you take a lot of time, uh, go through and try to figure it out yourself. But as the programs get bigger and bigger, that's going to become impossible because now you're trying to disassemble and figure out what a thousand programmers put into it over the years, all with different yeah. coding styles and, you know, chuff that's left over from Windows 1.0 kicking around in some driver and whatever else, you know. Nah, it just becomes just more and more complicated. Chat GPT, read all this source code and summarize this. Oh, yeah, because Chat function. GPT is so accurate doing code. Oh, oh yeah. Geez, what a mess. You know, when I was uh, learning to uh, make clone computers and, you know, sell them to people and stuff, I did that for a little while. And um, people would ask me about uh, or tell me that the um, 386, 486, and, uh, you know, Pentium ones all had code that, um, uh, they'd overlook or something, and it was filled with all kinds of code that that's not even used. Yep, they have to that keep it still happens to, to be backward compatible, and right. I could never understand, you know, how, um, you know, that could be and still have the chip work, you know, with all the junk in there. It just bypasses the junk. Gee. It's just still in there. It's. Um... I mean, none of the our processors and stuff are. It's like that. if you get paint stains on a table, you can still use it as a table. Yeah, but or you don't care about the paint. See the truck on blocks parked in the front yard. The rest of the house and the yard is still usable. There's just a truck on blocks over there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Buy it. It serves no purpose. Die, <laughs> it just takes up space. Bigger. That's yeah. exactly like code. <laughs> and they can't pull it out. Because well, they could, but they're, they're sometimes worried. Like maybe the, you know the the block is tied to the well uh, or something underneath. You well, can lift right. the truck there's up this, and floods or something. You know. There's the one guy that needs the water pump from a '57 Dodge, so you got to <laughs> keep the truck. <laughs> yeah, 
that that's actually a really good metaphor for it because that's exactly what it's like you're scared yeah. like if you've got all this code that's been twisted together and you know you've disabled parts you've got newer parts that work better over here but some of the old dependencies might still be there that if you yank that code out it might break something else you're not even thinking of because it's linked to it but you don't realize it and especially when you got multiple programmers working on different parts of it, like we were talking about before, where each one knows his part really well, but he's going to call a routine over here and a routine over here is somebody else wrote. And that guy doesn't know the first guy is even calling his routines. He goes, wow, I'm, I deprecated that. I don't need that anymore. I'm going to rip it out. Everything breaks. Right. And what's weird the is docs. they had Moore's law, you know, where the processor would be faster each time or was it each year it was supposed to double or yeah, every t- 18 months processors uh, yeah, capability right. doubles right. or whatever it was. Yeah. So, that's broken now. It's not. It's not happening anymore. It's, well, it's changed. Yeah, it's not quite that fast. The problem is code is growing faster than Moore's law. So okay, computers well, are getting is, and now we're hitting faster. the physical limits of how fast yeah. you can drive a chip. So now we're doing multi-core. We're doing real-time multitasking with multiple CPUs embedded into one big CPU. Right, but yeah, then the code's a lot more complicated because now you got to wait. Has that CPU finished its portion so I can uh, get its answer to do this part? Or, and and the motherboard um, wires and stuff are are limited too, right? They they can't be too small or they, yeah. Well, we're we're starting to hit quantum radiate. problems now, where electrons are jumping, you know, through quantum holes and stuff into you know right. adjacent wires and causing weird random quantum errors. Is that why we still have the cocoa? <laughs> well, like Rick said, we can actually understand that sucker. Right? And all these new Fango computers don't run Daggerath as well. So Yeah, exactly. Right. Actually, it was so funny. I uh, not have any quantum errors. <laughs> I think Ken's already left the call here, but uh, I, I'm keeping an updated list of any third-party uh, reviews of Cocoa Games for the uh, game on Challenge for using in, as future references. And I forgot Tier City Microcomputer News, Tandy's own newsletter or, or little mini magazine. You could actually get a free subscription for six months when you bought a Tandy computer was. They actually did a multi-page full review of Dungeons of Daggerath in one of those. So I, I just added that one to the list and I'll have to send it off to him. But Oh, that's cool. All right. Yeah, they did a two or three page full full review of Dungeons of Daggerath. They were impressed with it. Huh. And you didn't see that that often. I think I'm trying to remember if there was one other Coco game I think got reviewed. At least up through where I've gone so far, and uh, it's only been two that have had a thorough review like that. Dagrath being the main one. Clendathrew might have been the other one. Can't remember off the top of my head. I I put something on my um, Ron's garage that has to do with uh, the Dragon Two Hundred, and, it, and mm-hmm. it was um, reviewed or or done something with by BBC Computer, and that's why I thought it was interesting. So I put it up there. The, you know, they had, um, it, it's just a short clip and a, and a lady and a guy are, are talking and the green screen comes up and they show a graph being printed out and stuff and by the 200. But it had to do with uh, the BBC. Yeah, because the 200, wasn't that the model rename of the 64 that was when Eurohard was selling it in Spain? Yeah, I think so. But it was interesting to see. Every once in a while you come across... Uh, weird news clips and things that uh, you never thought could be possible. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to try to write those down because I'll read it and go, that's cool, and then I'll forget about it and where I found yeah. it and, and everything else. Like sales figures for Cocos from Tandy themselves, that's pretty rare, but they're in their Insider magazine, that magazine was for the employees, they did mention Coco One sales as of October of 82 or something like that. Was that half a million already? Oh, and that's yeah. the only official number I've ever seen. 
Can I go eat dinner now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting hungry myself. So, right. All right. Put a fork in it. Bye, everybody. Call asparagus. See y'all next week. This concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. The Coco Nation Show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song copyright 2022, D. Bruce Moore, mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever. The Coco Nation is over. She she hears somebody crying in the background. Mm-hmm. Well, bye. <laughs> that, that's that's Mark crying for food. <laughs> bye, everyone. Bye bye. See y'all. So long. <laughs>